The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. After having 16 life sentences handed down to me and $16 million and a very particular sequence of events taking place in order for me to be sitting here having this conversation with you. What's up, everybody? Today's episode features Tim McBride, author of the book Saltwater Cowboy, about his days as a smuggler in South Florida. Check it out. Tim makes me look like a nickel and dimer. In his era of operation from the late 70s to the late 1980s, Tim smuggled in over 1.5 million pounds from Colombia and Jamaica. We load our boat from this mothership with bales that are stacked not in the underneath the deck. They're on the bow, as high as, so, just so the radar can turn. And they're stacked as high as 10, 12 feet on the deck of the boat, all the way back to the back of the boat. He quite literally is, ladies and gentlemen, the biggest importer of pot in American history. And I hear their story and their claim to fame, a million pounds, and, and Flathorn's half a million pounds, and Brian O'Day, some three quarters or a half a million pounds coming out of the Gulf of Alaska, and George Young and his story about smuggling. And I take all these guys and I put them in a pile and I went, dude, that's not even a year's worth. And we have him here on The Connect. Tim worked with cartels in Jamaica, in Colombia, the cocaine cowboys in Miami. He was part of that whole empire smuggling in tons, literal tons, 50 to 100 tons at a time from Colombia to the shores of South Florida. From where we sit, for every one pound that you seize from whoever or us, 100 make it through. He got busted in the late 80s in one of the biggest federal takedowns in law enforcement history. He did five years in federal prison. He turned his life around. He became a jailhouse lawyer. He got out on appeal. And then years later, he's written this book, Saltwater Cowboy. I don't want to give any more away. This is a fascinating story. We couldn't even fit in everything into this episode. So if you want to hear even more detail about Tim's empire, go to patreon.com slash the connect show for the bonus episode with Tim. And without further ado, you guys, I give you Tim McBride, the number one pot hauler in American history, right here on The Connect. It was just one particular sequence of events after another that led me to become an outlaw. That's when I see the lights behind me start to flash. And I didn't even think, I just hit it. I was driving like my life depended on it. And then I parked the car, hopped out, closed the door, and I started running. And he pulls out a burner, shanks, like six inches. And then he passes it to me. And he goes, here, that's yours. Don't ever leave the cell block without this. He was the reason I made it out of that place alive. Tim McBride. How many pounds of pot did you haul in your day? Have you ever calculated? Uh, well, yeah, actually just a rough calculation based sure. on, you know, the amounts that I was involved in mm-hmm. moving. Roughly 30 million pounds. 30 million pounds. Yeah, some 13,500 tons, I think it comes to something like that. So <laughs> is it safe to call you the number one pot hauler in American history? Uh, With those kind of numbers? Well, you you know what? No, I would have to have to say no. But isn't it true, Mister McBride, <laughs> that you at least in your group, your the Saltwater Cowboys, isn't it safe to say that that region of Southwest Florida 
is responsible for importing more cannabis to the United States than any other group. Cause who else? Yeah. You know what? Yeah. I'll agree to that, you know, you because know? at that time and even today, you know, when I'm being interviewed and, you know, and I, I go back, I go back to newsreels and whatnot, mm -hmm. even the United States government and news agencies describe my little place in this earth Chukaluski and Everglades City mm -hmm. as the marijuana smuggling hub of North America. Sure. During those days. I believe it. Because who was the competition? I, mean, I don't even think the Mexicans were operating. No, no. Uh, this was then. this was this was when you were when you bought Mexican weed in those days, you got a bag full of leaves. Right. And, okay. So know, now was, I have to let's talk about that really quick. Okay. In your book, Saltwater Cowboy, which everybody needs to go out and get, uh, you really poo-poo Mexican cannabis. However, <laughs> they were the first ones to create the the sensimia, the sensimia. They isolated the the female plant, right? Got right. rid of the male. Right. They were the ones that actually came out with better bud than the Colombians. They they effectively put the Colombians out of business in many ways, which well, is who you were hauling for. Yes. I mean, that's that's a that's an interesting take on that, you know, and you know, with regards to the history of what you call sensimia, the mm -hmm. Seedless plant in sure. Spanish. Um, the uh, forerunners, I think, or, or, or com comparably um, accoladed would be the Jamaicans and their ganja, and what they describe even in those days as the virgin bud, man. The virgin bud. The virgin bud. And did that, what that did that was mean? the virgin bud being the female virgin plant. Right. They understood the significance of trying to keep as much male as you could away from the plants, you know, as it was. They understood that. That's why ganja, in my opinion, in those days, collectively with regards to Caribbean marijuana, that was the top shelf. That's the go-to right there. So you think you, you hauled for... Primarily Colombians, correct? Uh, primarily Colombian red bud and, right. and gold bud and some Santa Marta stuff out of uh, um, Punta Roja out of Santa Marta. Okay, so know. let's let's go through those tiers really quickly because okay. there were different levels to it. You were right. primarily hauled the commercial stuff. Yes. And that was right. called what? That was Colombian red. And this is out of this is the, the low Santa land, Marta. This is lowland Colombian marijuana coming off of the rivers in the lowlands closest to the coast. Right. The highland stuff. Now you begin to get into sativas and and more um, more well kept, higher quality strains. That's why you and it's more expensive because you have to go inland. You're not going to buy a huge boatloads of this stuff because you got to go inland for it. Right, and they could produce less of it. Right. Yeah, and I'm paying ten dollars a pound for the stuff that I'm getting in ten dollars. Ten dollars. They're paying. They're getting as much as forty to sixty dollars a pound because the quality's better. Right. And it's more of the virgin bud, right? Which we're speaking of. That's why it was more potent and and more equal in price, and but less amount, but more equal in in profit. What so was that's a, why it was it was more prevalent to have airplane loads of that shit dropped. Than, ah, than, I see. And boat loads of it mm -hmm. because you could fly an airplane inland, and a DC three you could get as much as six thousand pounds loaded. And that was nothing to you. 6,000 pounds, no, two, two no, no, and a half no. tons ain't shit. No, but if a guy comes to me and says, I didn't want to land my plane, I want to fly over and drop the shit. And there's a story in the book that, about that very thing, right. you know, um, and raining, you know, bales down out of the sky and mm -hmm. us picking them up out of the water. You know, that's Santa Marta, that's Punta Roja, that's the inland expensive stuff. So mm -hmm. that, that dollar amount that you can receive back on it, it is kind of comparable to the larger loads, but everybody wanted Colombian gold and Colombian red, mm -hmm. you know, was the, was the go-to. What about you know? the Jamaican stuff now? What did that cost? And what did, what quality was that compared to? The Jamaican to? stuff was anywhere between 15 and $20 a pound. And did Ten, that, depending on, you know, 
who and when and and, and, and that was for virgin bud that was for the virgin bud that was for the ganja gotcha. the stuff that um gave the ethiopian zion coptic church their claim to fame right you know that was part of their religion and brother love who brought that religion to star island in miami um because under the guise of our constitution being that you know freedom of religion so being a member of the ethiopian zion coptic church and marijuana and smoking ganja part of our religion well your government should allow that. Well, mm -hmm. they're wrong. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> they showed Brother Love how wrong that was. Sure, you know, but, sure. Um, and there's a funny story about that. Um, you may or may not know it when he was being subpoenaed for that very thing, you know, um, for marijuana. You know, oh, sure. At his at the gates of their mansion on Star Island, there's cameras and news art news people all around this little poor little guy in a black white shirt and a black tie handing the subpoena through the gates and brother love walking with two guys behind him and he's got shorts on gnarly dreadlocks and just a bro you know he's the tall skinny guy in the movie the square grouper yeah is featured in square Grouper, yes. right yes yeah he's like a white guy from the, the north like you yeah but he was he was the he was running the ethiopian zion coptic mm -hmm. church in the united states from jamaica from the Blue Mountains in oh, western Jama eastern Jamaica. Okay, he brought the Zion Coptic to you to the Star Island under the guise of the U.S. Constitution, yeah. thinking, "Oh, we're going to make this connection." But government wasn't going to allow that part of the Constitution to be read that way. Right. So that became the, that's when he got subpoenaed, and, and it's you can find this on YouTube. It's very funny. <laughs> he gets handed the subpoena to the gate. And he just takes it and hands it to the guy behind him. The guy, you know, hands it back to him, and while the guy's the little old man is explaining to him through the fence about the subpoena, mm -hmm. right? Love's got this thing and he reaches into this pouch hanging from his pants. Dude, he's got no shirt on. He's just a gnarly looking dude, right? With his dreads and grabs a handful of ganja, puts it in the subpoena, rolls it up like this and lights it and starts smoking yeah. it right in front of the guy. Yeah, he was a real renegade. <laughs> he, was, he, was, yeah. he was out because of his mind. Because it's God's herb. Yeah. And it says so in the, in the Bible. And Ethiopian Zion's in uh, Rastafaria is is Haile Selassie, mm -hmm. Ethiopia. You guys, today's episode is brought to you by Surfshark, the world's number one VPN virtual private network. You guys have probably heard about this by now. Obviously, we know we're all getting tracked. Google, all of the major search engines, they track you whenever you click accept on that cookies button, you guys. All of your information is being shared to hackers, to data merchants, data brokers. You guys, you got to get a VPN. Go over to surfshark.deals and check out Surfshark One. They offer uh, virtual private networks, antivirus protection, anonymous logging in and uh, searching. So, I mean, you can literally be anywhere in the world and log in and search something. The government could not trace you. You can get cheaper flights that way too. I booked my flight to Europe using a virtual private network using Surfshark One. And I got a cheaper ticket because the airline couldn't trace where I was at. You can bet you guys didn't know that. This is the way of the future, you guys. This is how you protect your privacy. It's how you protect the little privacy that you have left from the government, from all of these predatory, uh, you know, data people that want to take your information. Information is the new gold. That's the new land, right? That is the most, that's how companies are getting rich. Well, protect yourself. Plus, you can go use it for streaming. You can find Netflix shows in any language, in any country. I can be in Bangladesh if I wanted and use Surfshark One and I can watch uh, Moroccan Netflix shows if I wanted. I mean, this thing's incredible. There's so many uses. Uh, beyond just protecting yourself. You guys go over right now to surfshark.deals and use the promo code CONNECT to get 83% off your purchase 
Plus, when you sign up for 24 months, you'll get three bonus months for free. Are you guys hearing that? Are you morons picking up what I'm putting down? 83% off of your purchase when you use promo code CONNECT. I love Surfshark. I'm so happy they're sponsoring the show. I use this product. I use all of the products that I sponsor, but this is one of my favorites. Guys, protect your identity. Go over to surfshark.deals and use that promo code CONNECT and protect your privacy online. All right, let's get back into the show. So this comes out of the same time, the same generation, the mid to late 70s that you relocated to Southwest Florida and started hauling pot from Columbia. So you basically have right. two, the U.S. has two plugs. It's Jamaican and it's Colombian. Did right. you ever have a plug in Jamaica the way you did in Colombia? Oh, yeah. So did you actually go to Jamaica and meet them? Oh, yeah. Okay. We moved millions of pounds of Jamaican shit. You know, right. when we were talking earlier about Mr. Flatshorn, Rush His Soul, you know, the Black Tuna Gang, mm -hmm. and um, being interviewed as he was on that trilogy um, documentary of of um, Square Grouper, yeah. rather. Why do they never ask you to do that? Well, Corbin <laughs> Brothers. These are the guys, by the way, Billy. that made uh, the... Cocaine Cowboys, famous documentary. Right. Cocaine Cowboys 2, mm -hmm. the story of Griselda Blanco, um, and that as, as such, and the trilogy, which is Zion Coptics, um, right. Black Tuna, and Everglades City. That's right. And But um, when it came time to that, nobody really wants to talk to these people, you know? And, you know, Corbin, I'll give him his, I'll give him his just deuce. He's a, he's a great documentarian. Mm -hmm. I love his, um, his um, reenactments, his, his caricatures, his drawings, his cartoonish mm -hmm. type of things mm -hmm. that he does. You know, it's very interesting. But anyways, he uh, he really missed the mark when it came to Everglades City. You know, he dropped the biggest story he, he totally. could have gotten his hands on because in the in the documentary, the people that he's speaking to, I know each and every one of these people yeah. he's talking to. Now, only three of those people had any credibility whatsoever mm -hmm. to be talked to. Right. I wouldn't have talked to the guy, to be honest with you. Why? Because Why are you talking to me and not a guy that's got a, you know, net network documentary? Because he proved to me what the value of the story really meant to him. And it was more about telling a, a, uh, a story in a twist of his own because what he had done. And the reason I say this is when you, if, if you, any of you recall the, the story, um, as it was shown on square grouper, um, the guy in the ball cap with the white hair and white beard sitting in a big comfy chair. Mm -hmm. That's Jimmy. I grew up with Jimmy. Jimmy and I partnered on a, a, a lot mm -hmm. of jobs together. He was one of only three people in that video that had any credibility at all. But what they had done was he, while he's explaining how the, all the arrest had been taking effect and we'll get to that operation peacemaker and how everybody was being given life sentences for shit a year ago, they were giving 18, 12 months and shit. To, yeah. You know, and he, they left out how that explanation justifies everybody wound up telling on everybody back and forth like that only because, and that's the, that's where they began the recording. Everybody told on everybody back and forth mm -hmm. like that. And made him, and, and when I first saw Jimmy after that came out, he, he, he didn't say hi to me. It's been years since I've seen you, but I love you, man. I haven't seen you. All he did was profusely apologize mm -hmm. for the way they took him out of context. All uh, right. Yeah. And did that to him. 
So let's. So unless you know the story about why everybody told on one another because they were given immunity from prosecution, I didn't give. Okay, okay, we'll get to all this. We'll we're going to tell the that. story. We're going to tell but, the real story of the the pot hauling empires of South Florida, starting with you. Right. So, when it comes to the Zion Coptics and and, and mm -hmm. George Fla and Flashhorn, what I was getting with with Flashhorn, just quickly, not to go off off cue with you here, was um, to end that little tale I was telling is when they were interviewing Flashhorn during the square grouper trilogy, he mentions that he did, he and his crew were doing a fraction of what other people were doing mm -hmm. and who he was alluding to was us. Mm -hmm. Everglades city. Saltwater Cowboys. Right. And that's what prompted me to write this book because I'd heard of the Zion Coptics. I'd worked with the Zion Coptics. We'd moved millions of pounds of J Jamaican shit right mm -hmm. into star Island, right mm -hmm. down. I mean, you can see Miami beach for Christ's mm -hmm. sake from there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, and I hear their story and their uh, claim to fame, a million pounds, and, and Flathorn's half a million pounds, and Brian O'Day, some um, three quarters or a half a million pounds coming out of the Gulf of Alaska, and you know, like this, and George Young and his story about smuggling weed. And I take all these guys and I put them in a pile and I went, dude, that's not even a year's work for us. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, you know, you guys, you want to hear a story, brother? Sit your ass back because here comes a story. You ate man. George Young's lunch. <laughs> he was a nickel and dimer compared to you, Timmy. Yeah. You know, because he it, wasn't it, bringing it in. He was just getting it. He was, this is before he became, you know, this big time cocaine legend. Right. You guys were the, the offloading site. You right. literally were the first ones to touch it before it got to the U.S. Before 99% of mm -hmm. people that were smoking weed, we were probably had our hands on it before you did. Yeah. And I always say that, you know, and and back, back to you asking me about being the biggest and mm -hmm. pot hauler in the history. You know, that may be true, you know, but I can't speak for myself. All I can do is tell you mm -hmm. and tell, tell you guys, you know, what I did and, and, and exactly how it was done. And, you know, without embellishment, I've been asked about embellishment, and I would, uh, I would retort... To embellish on what I had written or the story that I had told would have first done two things. It had first come off sounding so ridiculously stupid, nobody would believe you in the first place. And second of all, it would put it past the realm of human possibility. Mm -hmm. And that was the edge on which we were working. Right. You couldn't very much do more than what we were doing. Uh, you know. And truly, when I grew up hearing these stories, I thought it was unbelievable. So right. I do understand why some of these people who watch the show, some of these trolls on YouTube I get the haters are for incredulous sure. because I they'll never, they'll, there will never exist a, a group and a, a people like you again in the drug trade because no. it simply is impossible. You grew up at a time where radar was just becoming a thing yes. where there was hardly any a federal coast guard right. uh, at law enforcement. There were very few and far between. You were paying everybody, all the local pigs, all of the, uh, you had lookouts everywhere. You right. guys were like the, uh, you guys were like the Soviet Union in the way that you had eyes. This was a everywhere. very, so let's get into that. Very sophisticated in its, in its, in its evolution. Yeah. So you're For born, three generations. You're born in North Carolina, right? Grew up till you're like 10 or 11. Uh, just before high school years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you relocate to Wisconsin, Wisconsin. My father took a job out of, uh, yeah. out of 82nd airborne in North Carolina. Okay. Took a sales and, position. And, uh, you get into smoking weed, uh, in high school, just like everybody else. Right. Mind is blown by it. Uh, and you kind of seem like this guy that just goes with it. You don't seem like much of a long-term thinker, no offense. Right. You're just like, oh, I got no. a job here in Hollywood. Let me come out and see what this is about. You come out here for a right. year, you work for Sammy Davis, <clears throat> uh, converting 
television, television to videotape. Yeah, because you wanted to watch TV without commercials. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, hilarious. Um, you get sick of that, and yeah. then your buddy from Wisconsin yeah. says, "Hey, I'm I'm going down to work at this uh, crab shack. It's like a restaurant, fish house. It's a fish house where they where they bring your catch in, and they and they 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 um." cook it and, and um, package it. And, and in this case, send it to the right to the restaurants in Miami. Okay. Direct catch gotcha. fish house. So gotcha. Literally fish, literally crap. Yeah. And we're working the vessels that source that. Yeah. So the crab boats. Yes. You knew you were going down to work on the boats. No, my buddy Mark did. Gotcha. I went down without any intentions other than, I, you know, like you said, you, you know, and I, mentioned in my book, you know, that if something came along that sounded like a good deal, I'm going to do it because I never wanted to be the guy to kick myself in the ass later on yeah. and go, fuck, I wish I'd have yeah. done that. Yeah. You know, and, and I even say in more, you know, quoting the book, I'm not that guy standing in the back of the crowd on my tiptoes looking to see what the fuck's going mm-hmm. on. I'm that guy elbowing my way to the front because yeah. there's some shit going on, man. I went in on Yeah, it, right? that's right. That's right. You know, that's me. And if something ever, and that's why the call, boom, yeah, I'm going tomorrow. Okay, I'm with you, bro. So that's where we went. But I went down to help his brother-in-law and sister build their new home. Okay. So I had something to do. He right. had a job on a, on a crab boat. And tell us where this but, is in, in Southwest Florida. <clears throat> this is on uh, two little islands that collectively... Uh, create the town of Everglades City and mm-hmm. the island of Chokoluski. Mm-hmm. Total population, even today, is just under 500 people. Wow. That's on the island? On both islands. Wow. Because and that, the, makes I mean, up, that makes up Everglades City. That's the entirety of Everglades City. Wow. And it, can't, and it won't get grow beyond that. Because of the hurricanes? Well, no. It's, I mean, there's, they're not making any more island, man. Right, right, right. <laughs> there's I just only so, like, much, so much space that you can build on. Right, you know? sure. And, and a lot of the space that's there that's of any significance are, are founding families own, mm-hmm. you know, right. shit like that. Because this, this culture, um, with regards to Everglades and eking out a living off of, na- off of nature, mm-hmm. including stone crabbing, which is what we did, um, catching alligator and catching birds for the for the plumes for the early in the thirties and the forties with the ladies from New York and like the big hats and stuff. Yeah. You know, that was a thing. Oh, wow. You know? Um, and, um, at that time, the several of the founding families, the Browns, the Hamiltons and the, um, 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 oh, it'll come to me. But, um, anyways, they were getting their mail and supplies that they needed by sailboat from Key West at that time. Wow. In their, you know, late 1800s, and they actually eked out a living in learning how to do this. And over the years, it became Chukaluski and Everglades City, as it is today. Still, population 500 people. Wow, that's it's, and everybody's making their living uh, crabbing somehow, working on the fishing boats, or they're fishing or they're stone crabbing still right, today, right. but not on the magnitude of, of that we were back in that day. Right. You know, um, and you had never sold drugs when you moved to Florida. No, I'd always had went went to you know, Tommy, the weed guy in town, you know, where, mm. I, where I went to high school in Wisconsin. Yeah. It didn't come to Florida with any uh, assumptions or uh, aspiring to haul pot or anything like that. I didn't even know about it, you know, till I got there and you'd hear these stories, but that's all they are. You know, there's just ghosts in the night and until you actually become one of them, then, mm. you know, that's ultimately what happened. But, and then how long before you made your first journey on the crab boat? Um, probably, about six months after I got there, but I had com- I just finished b- building a home, building Mark's brother's and uh, brother-in-law and sister's home. Mm. And, um, it was coming into, um, full 
full-blown crab season, and that's from October 15th to May 15th is the season. So we're coming into the fall. We're, you know, we're just October, November, because we come out at the end of the summertime. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to get the job on the boat right, right. at the beginning of season. So right. they just start the crab season, you know, October 15th. So we're around, around that time mm-hmm. in 1979. And, and you're 21 years old. I'm just turned, yeah, I'm 21 years old. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm club wise because drinking age in Wisconsin, where I came from was 18, everywhere else was 21. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we've been clubbing for three years by that time, mm-hmm. by the time I turned 21. So it was, you know, going to the bars and the clubs in town and stuff was old news to me at that right. time even, you know, but getting this job, you know, happened as a, as a matter of course. So, um, Captain Red, who I named in the book, his name is actually Billy, Billy Potter, just a wonderful human being, you mm-hmm. know, just, just a dear guy. Um, wanted to get, you know, back into the pot hauling because everybody was, it was that time of year. I mean, it was that's pot right. hauling season. So, yeah, that's right. And um, growing so, harvest season is coincides with crabbing season. Exactly. I didn't know that. Yep. So what, um, what he didn't like was the fact that the guy that was working with him on the boat at the time with Mark Clark, my buddy came from this guy from Michigan that they didn't really know his origins or anything about him, where he came from there. Um, crabbing um, pullers is what they're called when you work on the stern and you're a stone crab and mm-hmm. you're a puller like, like I was, you might do that one, maybe two seasons and then you've had enough because it is ball busting ass breaking work. Hard ass work. Yeah. It'll make a man out of you for mm-hmm. sure. Um, if you go beyond those, those number of seasons, you know, and most guys are turnover and, you know, they'll do it for a couple of months and they're like, fuck this, you know, mm-hmm. and it's cause the turnover is big. So he didn't really know this guy. Um, so they worked him for a week and he worked his ass off and he quit <laughs> you know, because it's possible to do that. So that's when he said, get Timmy and let's go, you know, put Timmy on board. So now it's me, Mark, who's Clark in the book and Billy. So they had imparted to me and told me how a stone crabbing operation works. You go on, get on the boat thoroughly early in the morning, three, three thirty, four o'clock, depending on how far you have to steam to get to your first line by line. I mean, we have, um, ultimately we had 6,000 traps individual stone crab traps. And we have pictures of those, I believe, um, what they look like. And they weigh about 50, 60 pounds each because there's seven inches of concrete in the bottom of these things. So when you push them off the back of the boat, they have to land top up so the crabs can get in the funnel on top. And we have to go through 600 of these a day. Oh my God. So we put 300 in one direction and that's direct and, and they're spaced about 30 yards apart. And that line runs about 12, anywhere from 17 to 20 miles. Then you skip over about 50 yards or so, and you pull the other 300 back the same way you came. So you're not twice as far away from home. You're mm-hmm. right back where you started from. We have 600 here, 600 here, 600 here, in 10 different spots, 6,000 traps. Right. We go to a different spot each day. And the traps are all connected on one no, no, no. line? No, no, no. Each one has a single rope and a buoy. Okay, gotcha. Similar to what you see on, um, if you're familiar with Deadliest Catch, mm-hmm. it's the same type of scenario. And I don't by any means compare the two because I don't, I wouldn't fucking do Alaska fishing to say my ass, dude. You wouldn't mm-hmm. get me on one of those mm-hmm. fuckers. But the, the scenario is the same. We don't have the dual bag system that you have to grab the rope because they're pulling a thousand pound trap plus it's catch. So they're pulling over a thousand pound piece of, you know, trap up. They're using rope. That's anywhere from 600 to 800 feet long. Oh, wow. But mechanism that they use, they, they use a grappling, throw a grapple hook. Right. We've got up three eighths inch nylon line on our 60 pound trap or 50 pound trap and a buoy about the size of a 
soccer ball, styrofoam. And we reach out with a catch pole, we call it. Ours, mine was made, and each puller makes their own customized mm -hmm. catch pole. Mine's about six foot long, made of one by one inch pressure treated lath with a shark hook with the barb ground off of it as the catch, fiberglass and fashioned on the end of it. So I reach out and grab the buoy underneath, the rope underneath the buoy, and pull the buoy up through a block and tackle system that's hanging there. And it goes around that spinning disc that you see on Deadliest Cats, yeah. that big giant disc. That's called a shiv. And it literally looks like a pipe, two pipe hands together like this, two pipe plates. And when the rope gets in between it, it cinches that rope and pulls on it. So to keep the rope from completely spinning around, there's another piece of metal sticking out called a knife. And all that is designed to do is kick the rope back out. Mm. Then it goes into a coiler for them because they got a lot of goddamn rope. Ours is mm. coiling at our feet because right. we're at the most 80 feet. You know, different depths of water require different lengths of line. So, and how does as you keep as you're going along now, you're 20 miles offshore. You've got hundreds. Oh, we're right on shore. We can see. You know, oh, I thought you said the line went 20 miles. Well, 20 miles in one direction. If we're, oh, we're if I we're see. working gotcha. short lines on a shoreline, we'll run them along the shoreline. Okay, so you're close to shore. Well, we're we're close it. enough to see the beach in some okay. instances, but gotcha. then we're working long lines. Now we're offshore, mm -hmm. eight ten miles. Mm -hmm. You know, and eight ten miles offshore of the Everglades, you're only in. 20 foot of water yeah. still because it's shallow there. Yeah. The depth becomes, as you get northern toward Fort Myers and, and Tampa in that area, the water gets deeper. Gotcha. At the southern end is the Florida Bay and the Keys, the archipelago mm -hmm. of the Keys. Right. So this relatively short, sh shallow area was where we're catching this delicacy. And back then- Bull stone crabs, and there's a picture of one that we'll show you as well. And back then, law enforcement in that remote part of Florida is pretty nil, right? Pretty, yeah. I mean- there were two Marine Patrol officers in town. <laughs> one guy worked the day shift. One guy worked the night shift. And oftentimes there was only one. And those aren't even feds, I don't think. No, no. <laughs> There's uh, half a dozen um, uh, National Park Rangers, but one of them was on my crew. Right. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, okay. So tell us about your first pothole. Tell us about the first yeah, day get back you went that. out to crab. Yeah. Thinking um, so, you're going out to crab. So yeah, the scenario went as, as we told, as I told you, we wake up at dawn, right? There, as soon as you can see that first buoy, that's when you start. Cause we got to get through that 600, you know, at that time it was only about 500 traps. We built our way up and got good at it enough to do that extra, but nevertheless, um, so I get on the boat that first morning and, you know, we, we on time, we cast off and shit. And we've got about an hour or two or three, maybe to get to where we're going that particular day. Cause like I said, we're shore, we're offshore, we're onshore, depending on where we're at in that set determines the length of, but regardless, I wake up and the sun's up and I'm thinking, well, they said we started like you know, dawn. So I lean my head out of the bunk like this and there's Billy. Captain Billy, Captain Red, sitting there looking at me and goes, big grin on his face. He goes, Timmy says, we're not going to pull traps today, buddy. He said, we're just going to hang out here all day, you know, off and unload a pot boat from Columbia later on tonight. <laughs> and I said, okay, cool. You know, you know. Did, did you, did you take a pause or were you just like, yeah, well, yeah it sounds I'm, good. You know, I just, you know, I looked at him and I just took it in stride. Like I do everything else. Mm -hmm. and I went, okay, cool. You know, but he knew it and my buddy Mark knew it and they kind of shanghaied me and waited until they got me offshore it was mm -hmm. a bit of a tongue in cheek thing for them. Now, yeah. how many different crab operations were there at that time in that area oh, and how many of them in our fleet? 
you mean. So what's a fleet? A fleet would be the, the, the stone crab industry in Everglades City and Chukaloski. Okay, they, so how many different boat, crews are in oh, boats are in that fleet? At that time, there had to have been, oh my gosh, 15, 20. And how many of them were involved in pot hauling? Well, let me think. Maybe 15, 20. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it serves as perfect cover at, yeah. because you guys continued to crab well, legitimately, the, even as you were. Well, you had to, I mean, you had to do the work mm. to support and justify the expense of the boat. I mean, yeah. we're talking about a 51 foot Marine management stone crab vessel that's designed to haul these traps and mm. 600 traps at six, six, you know, 50, 60 pounds a piece, do the math. That's mm. a lot of weight. Yeah. And they're perfectly designed to haul traps as well as perfectly designed to throw pale spot right. on. Right. You know, but there's an evolution to that as well. You know, they didn't always come hard packed like you see what, right. what people um picture in their mind as a bale of pot. Right. Um so this is this is nineteen seventy nine. This is seventy nine ish or what? in the fall, and um it wound up being fifteen tons that first night. The very first time you moved drugs, when I there got were surprised and offshore, forty thousand pounds a week. Thirty thousand. Thirty. Oh, thirty thousand. Fifteen tons. Thirty thousand pounds. <laughs> Who's your first yeah. haul? My first, first time I ever <laughs> sold drugs, it was one gram. Uno. <laughs> <laughs> you you moved thirty thousand yeah, pounds. Right. I ain't and shit. I, and the, you know, I and suck. <laughs> Okay, so you know, so what, I, you know, when you when you speaking in terms of that, dude, I have dumped more shit on my crab fishing boats than twenty twenty men can smoke in their life. Mm, right, right. Simply because of what I'm about to tell you, an evolutionary process yeah, to this yeah. thing. But I went out. You know, we got we did that. I mean, there's no playbook. There's no rule book. There's no instructions. There's mm. no talent. There's no guy on how to do this. Right. You just pull up there, and if you, you need to, you get on that boat and you help get that load out from below mm -hmm. and then you get on your boat and they start throwing it down to you and okay. now you're moving hang on hang on so let's walk us through uh walk us through that the ship that you're meeting right that your crab boat is meeting is the mothership yeah that is the ship uh and when we say ship is it like a big they commercial come in, ship it, well it can be it a smaller? giant commercial size freighter yeah or freighter. it could be a yacht or your large yacht or shrimp boat you know, all How, so a shrimp boat is bigger than a crab boat. A shrimp boat is much vastly bigger hold right. in it than a crab right. boat. So the, all the pot generally in crab these boats, boats don't was, have holds. So so in these right because they had holds. We so, have a bit of a hold underneath the right. the bow section and you know a, a, a midship a little mm -hmm. bit, but the rest is engine compartment and and gear steering mechanisms. So you but you wouldn't actually have bales of pot on the deck. Yeah. for people to see, you would. Oh, dude. I mean, yeah. Now We're, and you'd haul during the day oh with these no. bales no, no, no. stacked up. Okay, okay, good, good, good. You came under the cover of night. What we do is done between the hours of sunset and, and sunrise. Right. The first phase of it. Right. That's going off and doing the fifteen tons. And by the way, I went the second night, the second day. I went out with stone crabbing on that very boat. Same thing. I woke up. No, nope, not again today, Timmy. We're doing 22 tons tonight. <laughs> <laughs> now you're two days in. We're um, up to 40 two days tons in, of I wheat. haven't seen that first trap, man. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, wow, this is okay. So, but I got paid rookie pay. Right. Five right. grand each night. And I'm thinking, well, still. You made you know, 10, 10 grand, grand in two nights. At that time, you That's know, like what somebody an makes average in a year. blue collar worker is making that in a year. This I just unreal. made it in two. Nice. Why, why would anybody not do that in that right. area? Why right. would you not do that? That brought so much economy 
Yeah, but dude, we're just getting started. Okay, so so <laughs> first of all, so so take us end to end how one of those pot shipments moved from the mountains of Columbia all the way to the shores of Southwest right. Florida. Now, I didn't understand that part of the mechanism until, until later, I, which until we'll later get to, on. But walk us through it. But yes, um, you see vast fields of Colombian red as far as the eye can see through a valley between two mountains. And, and this is Santa Marta. For people to, people to know, just for context, ge geographically, Santa Marta is on the northeast coast of Colombia. Yes. So it's the closest. Barranquilla and Barranquilla Peninsula and Barranquilla City is, is just offshore right. and south of that. Right. And Barranquilla, and, they have a cartel there, the Cartel de Barranquilla. Yep. But uh, these this is far a long way from Medellin and Bogota. We're these down are closer distant to Cartagena, cities. which That's is right. on the south end. So it's it's Caribbean so on this end. So we're, we're Caribbean. We're more southern <laughs> right. between... Bronquilla and Cartagena. Mm -hmm. To get to the Santa Marta that you're talking about is way north. Okay. So you're further inland. Right. And that's where the good shit is grown. That's where the expensive stuff right. is grown. That forty to sixty dollar mm -hmm. stuff, which you can only get so much of because it's you know, it's harder to grow. It's, it's, more, it's yeah. It's taken care of better. Yeah. And where I'm getting it from in these vast fields, as far as the eye can see, is is done, you know, by hand. Mm-hmm. It's grown by hand and it's put out on wire, chicken wire, screen mesh boxes to dry and cure. And as they turn them and shake them, the water leaves drop through the screen and become the shake. And the and, buds stay on and top. And the buds stay up on top. Right. And, and this whole process of taking a mountainside, you know, to get 40 tons of, of shit takes a lot of weed. Mm -hmm. And it's a huge process because you guys in the, in the cannabis business now understand what it takes to cure and dry and mm -hmm. shit like that. Well, it's no different. You can't just take it off the plant and pack it into a bale. Mm. It'll be molded by the time it gets mm -hmm. to us. So the, there's that process. And then uh, in the earlier days, when we first began, my first began a pot hauling in the uh, late 70s, the bales weren't coming compressed. Right. They were, they were only coming as compressed as somebody could do with their foot maybe or a hand press right something to that fashion and they were coming in all irregular different sizes man right. I mean, from 40 pounds to 110 these log looking things there was no rhyme or reason to it and by the time we've gotten them there's no telling how many times they've been handled by that point and some of them are coming apart and the shake is coming everywhere and i wrote a the you very, said the shake uh, would get all oh, over your dude, body. When you're in the bowels of these boats and you're moving these uh, these things around and they're shaking, seeds flying everywhere. You know, I looked at my buddy Mark one night. You know, we're on in the this bottom of this huge freighter, and it, I said I started laughing, and he's what the are you laughing at? I said, you look like a sesame seed bun, man. Your face is all seeded like this. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what Caribbean weed was. It was seedy. Yeah. You know, there's no getting away from it. No, it was garbage. Compared to, it wouldn't even sell today in America. No, no, no. It wouldn't even be worthy of a, you know, worthy of a test. You yeah. Because you're yeah. talking maybe 7, maybe 12%, if you're lucky. THC. Yeah, if you're yeah. lucky. But we still got stoned off of it. Right. Because, I mean, that's what you that's had, that's what you man. had. Totally. That was your daddy's weed. Mm -hmm. Today's weed ain't your daddy's weed, no. man. No, um, But that being said. Um, that's the beginning phase of it. Right. And, and it's put on either and, and a, a, sh a shrimp boat, a freighter, a, a shrimp freighter, boat or stuff like that, but, or a yacht. But, but understand that even in those days, it wasn't as easy as pulling up to a dock and getting loaded in Columbia and driving off. They had the Navy to contend with. They had the military to contend with as well. They could pay them off for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. But there was, it, you rather than pay them, you know, who wants to pay the military, you yeah. know, or the, or the, you know, the Navy. 
yeah. for protection because it costs, and that that drives the cost they have to yeah. spread to me. So there goes the $10, you know, or whatever like that. Plus, if they find your shit, wherever you're packaging or wherever these big, and there's a lot of different processes areas taking place because when I'm going down there ultimately, or, or my progenitors, who, are, who we learned from the first two generations of us learned from, was um, um, you're getting on, uh, different grades because they're grown by different people, mm-hmm. different areas. So you're getting different grades of pot. But back to the bales. Um, the compression stuff wasn't there. So when we're getting them, then we're all, they're nasty shit. And we get this shit on the shore. Now we got to give it to the smaller boats. Now, here's where I have to tell you the scenario by which the rest of the mechanism works. We load our boat from this mothership with this stuff, with bales that are stacked not in, underneath the deck. They're on the bow. They're on the sides around the windows. They're on the deck of the bop of the wheelhouse as high as, so, just so the radar can turn. And they're stacked as high as 10, 12 feet on the deck of the boat, all the way back to the back of the boat. Wow. As much shit as we can get yeah. on this thing. And, and in it's those about days, an, it's about an eight day journey from yeah, well, the tip well, of Columbia well, to okay, Southwest. Let Florida. me back up. This is, um, this is from the mothership to us. Yeah. Now the mothership, it could take as much as any, as many as three weeks to get a ship loaded sometimes. Mm-hmm. But there was ways around that too, as well, depending on where you went and what coast coastline you needed to be at. And we had different coastlines that were, were protected. Now, do you know, did the Colombians, the way that you guys uh, hauled the pot off of the motherships onto smaller boats and then brought it to shore. Is that how the Colombians loaded their ships? Did they take small boats a lot of times, 20 miles out in Colombia and then load them onto the 60% mother? 60% of the time, that's how they got loaded out there too. Gotcha. They got loaded. And that's why it would take sometimes a week or so for a mm. boat to get loaded. If you're getting any significant amount of shit. And I've seen boats with as much as two and 300,000 pounds on them when I was a kid. Two and 300,000 pounds. Okay, so the mothership... Ultimately, then it makes, makes that it, eight day trip or so, depending on any weather pattern they may get mm-hmm. involved with in the lower Caribbean and, and, and get to Southwest Florida, just 30 miles is territorial limited water in, in Florida. Okay. So they would stay, they would out, stay outside, they would stay outside teri- of the territorial right. water. So they're in international waters. Still. Right. They're Got still it. in international waters. And it's very rare unless we own that vessel, which we did a lot of times we could bring it in closer. And mm-hmm. that's just made our job a little bit quicker mm-hmm. because- once we get to that mothership and load it, like I said, we pull up to it and we either help them get it on deck and then they throw it down to us and we put as much as we can get on that boat. And in the earlier days of the bells that weren't compressed, it wasn't a lot of weight. It was more bulk than it was anything weight wise. And we'd get into the shoreline and kill our engines because we're at the 10,000 islands and literally look this up. We, I got a picture we can show you actually of what the 10,000 islands look like 25 miles of coastline, four miles deep of literally tens, 10,000 mm-hmm. islands in Chukaluski and Everglades are one of the inner islands mm-hmm. toward the mainland. So we have this labyrinth of islands to go through that we play and goof off in every day. We know this shit, like, you know, your backyard, but to follow us in there, dude, you're gone. We'll leave you, you lost. We'll leave you lost and leave some guy sitting two islands away watching you figure out how lost you are while we're working. <laughs> yeah. Law enforcement has no chance. The outsiders, no, they, they no. have no chance. No. So how many, if, if the ships in international waters, now the mothership, how say there's a, what's, what would be an average load? Just, just guesstimate. An average? On one of those. Yeah. 40 tons. Okay. So how many boats, how many smaller boats, crab boats? Two. You can load 20 tons on each boat. We could put as much as 25 tons on our boat and, and not 
risk sinking it because would they throw the bales down like so say say it's a freighter ship right. so that's high it's a high ass ship would you right. guys actually have to walk up like the plank to grab them and or they just throw them straight throw down them right down on the deck right <laughs> yeah, at you, you you tell this story about how uh, one time they're, they're unloading a freighter ship and they're throwing so many bales down oh, that yeah. the wood of your crab oh, boat glass, starts to like crack the fiberglass. You can hear it. Yeah. Under the <laughs> weight of wincing, all of this pot wincing every time one hit the deck, you know, but that was in the little later years when they started compressing the fibers, right. you know, but that, that wasn't uncommon to, to, to reach a vessel like that. You know, when their deck is their weather, their weather decks 16 feet above ours. We're not getting up there because there's nowhere to tie off. So the captain has to keep the boat up next to the ship while they're throwing that shit down. And we're trying not to get killed by getting hit by one of these. But by our inability to keep up solved our problem with the boat coming apart because there are piles now. There's a pile there and they're hitting one another. Right. So it's cushioning so it's the blow. cushioning the blow now. So we're like, oh. so, but we begin to stack them on the bow, mm -hmm. you know, on the sides of the boat, on the wheelhouses high, just so the radar can turn and straight back. And we can get as much as, you know, 450 pieces, maybe, mm -hmm. you know, we count them or try to count them, yeah. try to keep count. But we also keep an eye on our water line, uh, our deck with regards to the water line, because um, the deck and the stern of the boat are what's called scupper holes. And scuppers are what's... Um, they're designed to catch and to drain off any water or rain or any working, you know, material that may end. It just drains out and goes off the deck. Mm -hmm. They're on every ship has scupper holes, you know. So we risk getting loaded to the point where those scuppers go underwater. And if those go underwater, if the water comes on board, goes into the hole, we sink. Yeah. So these guys are throwing this shit and we're thinking, mm, we should have about enough. So we yell up to this guy that's leaning against the rail. He's peeling an orange, right? The captain, I guess. How many more? And he's yelling, 50 more. I'm thinking, okay, 50. So we're counting back. There's only two boats. because There were three, but mm -hmm. the third boat had to go unload another load that was you know, some mm -hmm. other place. So mm -hmm. that's how busy we were. And we only were expected to get 60,000 pounds. So we figured that's just so many pieces, 60,000, you know, 30,000 each. We could, you know, we mm -hmm. could do as much as we could. And so the scuppers start to go under. You see the water. So we're cutting life jackets apart and stuffing the foam into the scuppers mm -hmm. to keep us from sinking. And we're asked the guy, you know, we all begin, how many more are there? And he yells down, he goes, 50 more. That's, <laughs> we're thinking, that's a Latino for you. This is oh, the only no, number. 50 more. You're, you're good, man. Yeah, you're this good. is the only number this guy knows. Now, how many more were actually left? <laughs> well, dude, hundreds. We pulled away. Oh yeah. Cause you guys were like, we're going to sink us. Yeah. Dude, we got to get away from these crazy. Cause there was, there had to have been 60 guys on this freighter. Wow. And they were lined back to back down one hatch, open hatch, coming out another hatch on the other side of the deck, back to back with a bale on their shoulder. It's cartoonish. Thrown to this boat, thrown like, to that boat, yeah. thrown to this boat. I mean, it was a solid line of guys. There was no break in the line. And, and when we pulled away, as far as we could see these guys with binoculars, because we would start typically three, four hours before sunrise mm -hmm. or sunset to have enough daylight to get loaded and still get, you know, have enough time comfortably to get, get it in shore, which we'll get to. So you guys would load while the sun was still up, but we you're, would make you're, our you're, you're out of sight of shore. Nobody can see you. Well, we're offshore. Yeah. Plus we're off the horizon yeah. of the boat we're going to approach. Right. And the horizon on the water is around 10, 12, 10, 11 miles. Okay. And by horizon, I mean like when you're, if you're driving across the desert and you see things shrinking in the distance and they disappear. 
Once yeah, they disappear, that's is. the horizon. Yeah. <laughs> For those who, well, <laughs> yeah. I don't okay, know. Okay, kids. I, you know what? Where the- <laughs> I actually can't say for a fact that our audience isn't that stupid. So there you go, kids. You just okay. learn about what a horizon is. Yeah. So we'd sit off this horizon. Yeah. And that would disassociate us from the vessel being there. We see it on radar, but we yeah. don't, you know, we don't, yeah. have, you know. But, okay. But so when it comes time to go, there's a particular call sign attached to every vessel that shows up. And we a particular what? Call sign. Call sign. And we're, we're made privy of that call sign because- the What cap, is a call sign? A call sign is um, um, a name, or um, in this case, it was Felipe Zorro. Felipe, Felipe, Felipe Zorro. And that's what they say over the radio Our to let you know. Our captain say that, Felipe, Felipe, Felipe Zorro. Mm-hmm. Felipe, Felipe, Felipe Zorro. Like that. And then when he heard that, Felipe, Felipe Zorro, come on. We knew that that was the boat that we he heard it's us. ready. And they know now that the boat that's coming to them is the one that should be. Mm. So they shouldn't freak out because yeah. they, they see two boats coming right. at them. Right. That's their call sign. That means we approach them. So we have the 10 miles to get to them. And it's usually two, three, hour, four hours before sundown. So we have some time to work. <clears throat> so now we're headed back in. And as the sun's hang drunk- on, I, w- I want to stop you right there uh, real quick. Sure. In the course of loading these boats- there's so much volume that many pieces, many bales would just drop in the water. You guys, was that an everyday, every time did you guys lose some product? I imagine yeah. it's inevitable. Well, right? it's, it's it, most likely 99% of the time inevitable. Yeah. Uh, particularly in the earlier days when we're talking about the irregularity and yeah. the size of the bales and the shape of them, for you know, for instance. And, and, and those, they're just stacked up on there and, yeah. and the, the boat might swell this way and roll a couple off, hence square grouper right and that's where square grouper that's came the name from. square grouper was born i imagine if you were like a kid like a teenager you could make a business just out of uh driving your boat around looking for square groupers well yeah i mean there was a lot of the um fishing industry is huge in southwest florida and mm-hmm. always has been and if it's there if they're out there somebody else is going to find them and it's not necessarily that we you know go looking for them because there's somebody who might find it before you, you know, but would is, people here with like normal well, what people would happen typically is if somebody found something floating out there, any, or any sizable amount and they would say square grouper on the radio and anybody with a radio and a boat, they'd be out there. Looking it was just for a free shit. for all. It it's, was like, it's free shit. Man. Wow. Free but, lunch. But that being said, as we pulled away from that freighter, cause risking sinking mm-hmm. we watched them all the way to the horizon they were still throwing that shit off the boat <laughs> just into the ocean just got rid of it because they're like we're not going back with well, this shit. there was no so, going back to it yeah no and, and but they're not going to go back do, they're not going to go back to columbia with a hauling 101 is you never approach a boat twice yeah if you don't have to why not well because you run the risk of you know being seen but why would you know? the Colombians throw it into the ocean? Because they're not, they don't want to well, go back. It's not the Colombian shit any longer. Right. It belongs to the Cubans who paid us to go get it. Right. Because we're paid $175 a pound to go to Colombia, pick it out and ship it and bring it offshore. Okay, so to we're going to get into that. Right. You're, you're loaded now. The crab boat's loaded. You're, you're uh, going away from the mothership. What happens next? We take about three, four hours or so, five hours, whatever it takes, however long, however offshore we are and how fast we can move to get inshore, kill our engines just outside the islands, the 10,000 islands. Mm-hmm. And once we kill those engines from out of the islands comes 15, <laughs> 20, 25 smaller boats yeah. that typically have a twin engine, 235 Evinrudes on them. What is that? Uh, um, outboard, outboard motor. Do they go fast? 200, 235 horsepower each. So they go, for, they go pretty, pretty fast. They, they're not just fast, they're powerful. 
So are we talking 80, 90 on the water? Well, yeah, if they're empty. Yeah. They could very easily get to a, you know, 60, 70 mile an hour-ish. At, no. Okay. There's a, the, the hull would restrict you from going a certain right. speed because um, hulls are designed and there's a hull speed, it's called. Yeah. You can only put so much horsepower on, on a particular design of a hull. Right. In this case, they're more flat bottom than they are any any V bottom to them because they're designed to go through the shallows. Mm -hmm. We have these boats built specifically to do what we need them to do. Right. And there were two brothers in town in Naples, just north of us, who built boats designed particularly for us to do what we needed them to do. And that was to go through these islands shallows. Yeah. And, as, and they were designed with a horizontal and vertical trim. So not only mm -hmm. could you do regular trim like, like everybody's familiar with, but you could also trim the engine this way up and down which meant you could bring the prop right up to beneath the boat. And as long as that prop will go through the water, that boat's going to go through the water. So you could be in a couple so feet of water. So they've got 30, 40 bales on this boat, and they're taking it through 12 inches of water. Wow. And, and nobody's following incredible. you. And they're doing this, and they make as many trips through the islands to Chukaluski Island, mm -hmm. where we've got one, two, or three of our buddies' houses that are right on the shoreline. They have mm -hmm. a dock right on the edge of the island. And it'll literally sack these houses full from the back to the front, Right. Every room, kitchen, bedroom, dining room. I mean, everywhere you can stick a bale in this house, it's there because we took the furniture out of it. So you got 25 boats that come to the... So you have three levels to this. You got, and they're it goes going mothership, back and forth. Mothership, crab ship. Uh, what did you call those small boats that brought the product to the stash house? They're the offloaders. Those are the offloaders. Right. Uh, didn't you also have a boat? It was like an escape boat? Right. Okay, that, tell us what this is. That, this is wild. That's what we call a chase boat. A chase boat. That's our, that's our, when we're offshore, that's our escape vessel. That's our escape valve. So if, the, if you're on a crab boat and the We're lawman, loaded down, like, if, like loaded I said, down if you with, looked, if you could see this boat from the air, all you would see <laughs> is a mountain of pot going through the water with the radar turned in. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, li quite literally. You're you sitting know. ducks if, if the law's oh, there. Dude, that's why you do it at night, because there's no hiding this shit. Yeah, there's dude. no hiding. There's no, there's no, you can't put yeah. this shit below deck. Mm -mm. I mean, you got 25 tons of shit on the boat. So the chase you know? boat is obviously, if you so got to get in the chase, you jump doing, into that. Exactly. Because you're only doing maybe, at most, maybe six knots. I mean, these boats right. are powerful. These are workhorsing. We've right. got a, a Detroit 12-cylinder twin turbo diesel engine in this boat that's powering a 800 pound brass four prong prop and it's humping this boat through the water dude and it's not moving but the captain's got radar mm -hmm. when we get the boat loaded that's when the captain does his work that's when he's dialed in he's on the radar he's keeping track of not by radio contact we had what's called a polaris scanner you didn't even have to talk on the radio you just key the mic like this and the scanner would stop on a 360 degree blinking diode and stop and tell you the direction that that mic key came from. Mm -hmm. So, so if if you saw something dark, if you saw something on the Polaris radar as you're bringing it into the offloaders, no, the I, Polaris is radio. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Radar is visual. We have 50 mile range from 50 miles oh. to 30 to 40, 45 to 40, 35, 30, 25, all the way down to five miles. The closer that vessel gets, you can tune in on it like that. Okay. How could but you if, tell that it was a, a cop coming and not an, an offloader? We would watch it. Captain Billy would be tuned in. All the other captains mm -hmm. that are running with us, dark and silent, we're mm -hmm. all watching this vessel to see what track it's going to take. If it looks like it's going to approach us, we just leave the boat running, get off the fucker, and get onto that sit that chase boat that'll do 70, 80 miles an hour before your ass even hits the seat. We've got a picture of one. 
And what mine. kind what kind of boat is that? Mine was a uh, thirty one foot, or actually total thirty five foot Chris Craft Scorpion with twin two hundred and thirty five horsepower offshore Mercs. So that bitch is flying. This is designed to take off sea rough water and um, designed to take off and just haul ass. That's on like a Ferrari on, on the water. Yeah. That's our getaway. Oh, so how many can, times in your career uh, bringing in a load did you have to jump in the chase boat? Never had to jump off. Never? Never. Oh, you guys were so spoiled, you boomers. <laughs> oh. But it was always good to know that Johnny or whoever right. the guy we were on in the chase boat at the time, it was good to look over and see him, sit right. him there, just knowing that he was there was a huge comfort because we're, we're dead sitting talking ducks, dudes. Totally. If somebody decides they're going to come after us. Seems and that was, was what brings me back to the way the shit was coming in those days. Nasty, dirty. I mean, just mm -hmm. shake everywhere. We'd give it off load to the guys, you know, mm -hmm. on shore, and then they take it and do the house thing with it. Right. Like that. So they stash. We'll, we'll tell you what happens beyond that in yeah. a minute. But getting back to the nastiness, now we would have to go offshore and clean the goddamn boat, man. I mean, we're spending hours cracks and getting the seeds and shit off the deck and like that. It was just a fucking pain in the dick. And we were doing this for months, you know, each season. And then ultimately, Somebody in the first or second of the generations got wise to in the early ages when the advent of the household and commercial trash compactors came on the scene. Mm -hmm. Went, blink, light went on and said, okay, here's what you guys need to do. And they took some of these compactors down to the jungle and some generators and said, now you start feeding this shit and packing it. Showed the Colombians how to do it. This is how yeah. the advent of the bale, which everybody knows today, this is the evolution of it. So at a bale. Because we were responsible for this shit once we took a hold of it. Yeah. We, uh, Colombians didn't own it. Cubans owned it, but mm -hmm. we were still responsible for it. Now you're giving us shit that we have to literally, I was sweeping shit in piles on the deck and taking the ice shovel and throwing it overboard. That's how much shit we were cleaning off of our decks. And I told you earlier, I had literally dumped out of my crab boots enough smoke that 20 guys could smoke in a lifetime. Yeah. That's how nasty the shit was. We finally, ultimately, Billy, um, the captain would bring out rolls of visqueen and duct tape, and we would line the deck of the boat and over the rails and tape it down. So when we got this load and got it off, we'd run offshore instead of doing the hours of cleaning pull this shit together and tie a chain and an anchor to it and throw it off the boat and be done with it. Yeah. That's when they said, enough of this shit, man. you got to clean this up. Mm -hmm. So then we, now the bales are getting packed. They're getting easier to handle. Now the weights, now the loads are getting heavier. Right. But now, now, they're getting now at least the bales are uniform. They're right? uniform. They're more easily stackable, let's say. Right. And the jobs were quicker, but right. they got heavier. They're heavier. There got to be more though. How, how much pot could be in one well, bale? 80 pounds. 80 pounds. 80 pounds. Right. And because they were coming in so, such neat fashion and stackable, the, the size of loads got bigger. We did, we worked one month, 28 nights in a row. Now we're talking about not just our boat, because we could work maybe three nights in a row and then we'd have to take a few days off because that'll kill you, man. You know yeah, I mean? this is hard work. Dude. Not only stone crabbing make a man out of you, but doing this at night too, mm -hmm. dude, you're moving 800 to 1,000 80-pound bales, sometimes two times a night. You can only do that for so long and you die. That's why out of a town of just under 500 people, half the town was in on this. Had to have been. It was. Had to have been. Now, how much, <laughs> how much does a, let's talk about the chain uh, of this conspiracy. 
how many, what, are, what is hierarchy. like a worker? Yeah. What's a worker making? And then all the way up to who owns this operation. Okay. Yeah. Break, break that down. Well, that has to, that has to deal too primarily with this, the, the second half of the, how we get it to Miami once we load the house. Sure. Now, during the loading of the house at night, um, a lot of times we're using cars, trucks, vans. I mean, anything that you can stick a bale of pot in, that's how the rest of the town, even the women, got, guys, the, the gals got involved in being drivers. And the drivers are never, you know, they, they never know where the house is that the, the shit's being loaded at because it's always loaded for them. Right. So the owner would have it loaded that night while we're loading the house and drive it home and park it in the front yard and just leave it there. So he's been home all night. And then call his driver and say, come and get the truck. And, you know, and we would tell him where to go in Miami. They would drive that 120 miles. Only one way to in and out of there is Highway 29. Mm -hmm. Only one road there. And the only road from there to Miami is US 41. Dude, there's no other way to get there. So we're all these tens of thousands of pounds are going out during the day. And nobody would suspect of this little town of less than five people that 40 tons of shit a day is moving <laughs> off this Island. That's where all of the pot, virtually 95% of the pot in America at this time is coming through this town of 500 people yeah. on an island. Yeah, pretty much. Incredible. And we never owned it. We were what the government called service providers. Mm -hmm. That's why we were getting paid the money that we were getting paid. And we charged them $175 a pound to move as much shit as you want. We'll get it from wherever and put it on your doorstep is what we were doing in this scenario and driving it to Miami. And, and we'd have 25, 30 Drivers driving all day long, making many trips to a plaza that's designated in Miami, right. eastern or western Miami, somewhere on Coral Gables or Kendall, or Kendall. Like that off of Crom mm -hmm. Avenue and, and Kendall was, Avenue. Was the 175, was that price established from the early generation, yeah. like before you guys? Yeah. And that and so that was just passed down. That, like, this is that how price much was the maintained all through the 80s. Gotcha. And they were like, Base, this is what the Colombians will give you. If you want your yeah. shit done by us, this is what you pay. You want me to do the whole thing from A to Z? Mm -hmm. Go to go get it and, and have pay for it and put it on your doorstep? That's 175. Now, you were, uh, they were working for or hauling for Cuban traffickers. The well, did you know of any other groups? No. Wow, this is fascinating because Cubans are obviously uh, infamously uh, associated with moving cocaine for right. the Colombians. Right. You were hauling uh, enormous, uh, otherworldly levels of pot right. that were owned by the Cubans coming right. from the Colombians. That's the, really interesting. The reason for that is because you, the Cubans and the Colombians weren't very well worked. They never worked well together. They never trusted one another, mm. ever. So they always put a gringo in the middle, and the gringo just happened to be one of the Daniels brothers or whoever and me, mm -hmm. ultimately. And uh, the reason that happened was it, during this get, driving it to Miami scenario, which takes place during the day, like I said. I mean, these houses are getting unloaded, and these drivers make as many trips to this plaza as they can throughout the day until the day's ending. And what's mm -hmm. a plaza? A strip mall or a little, you know, gotcha. with, with a bunch of little stores and stuff like that, where we would have one guy from our side and one guy from their side standing and going, that's our truck, that's our car, that's our van, like this. Our driver would get out and go window shop. They would put a driver in it and take it and empty it and bring it back. So we developed what the government now calls a dead drop. Mm -hmm. That scenario by which you just walk away from it and dead drop it and it's taken care of. Our driver would then see the vehicle come back, get in it and go make another load if there was time. And this is how it was done. But during this 28-night stretch I told you about, some guys and, and gals would think, you know, they said it was more nights than that than we worked in a row. 
28 nights. I left it at 28 nights and, and answer to your earlier question uh, with regards to some of the amounts that were taking place here that I'm speaking of. That 28 nights, I did a rough calculation to the tune of 1.6 million pounds. When, so what's the math on that? 1.6 million times 175? Uh, yeah. It's coming right here. <laughs> where, did you own this or were you just a worker at this no, time? No, no, I was just a... I was now comes the the order the order of secession. Hang on, how much is it, Brian? Two hundred eighty million dollars just to you guys in twenty eight days. Just just to middleman, just to simply be the logistics, just to, just to the crew and the boss that set it up. That paid <laughs> and, for everything. And and so the boss is essentially the glorified crab boat owner, if well, you will. He's, well, no, nobody knows. Nobody most. And when I was a kid, I didn't know who the boss was. Nobody gave a who the boss was when you say boss hold on who are the you guy who about? organized the potholes that we were going offshore to do we were going offshore to unload this this vessel and bring it in and store it and move it the next day You're it talking was about done the by Columbia. one of the brothers yeah one of the brothers okay yep and in miami with a cuban counterpart that ordered this stuff and paid to have it they give you a deposit my deposit sixty thousand bucks you don't get that back who will give you a deposit the the for people that I'm going to go buy for. Gotcha. So the Cubans. I secure that. I secure boats. I secure guys for certain right. nights, and that money's you. If your job doesn't go, you don't get it back. Right. This is but this is what the boss does. This is what the boss does. So, so there how, were only a few of those. And as a kid, I didn't. We didn't care who the guys was running the shit. All I yeah. cared of a shit about was getting that p paper bag full of cash right. okay. across the kitchen so, table. So, okay. Right. Of course. So, so working 28 nights, hauling <laughs> 1.6 million pounds, right. just as a worker, how much did you make? Dude, I couldn't even tell you, man. I was getting paid for jobs that I don't remember having done because here's, here's a, another misconception. We bring this, say I, say I bring you 40 tons of shit and I put it on your doorstep. I don't get paid right away. I need to get paid. I get paid when that load starts to sell in Miami. Right. Then when they've accumulated enough pay, I start getting paid. But in lieu of that payment, I gave you everything of your load except $40 million or $20 million worth of it. If you right. owe me $20 million, I'm keeping $20 million worth of your shit. Right. You would hold you off lose half. It, right. I'm calling one call and this shit sold. We're getting paid. <laughs> right. Because we didn't risk our ass to go all the way to Columbia, mm -hmm. Jamaica, or Central America, where the f we went to get your shit to not get paid. To get ripped off. So yeah. knowing that, that's why cocaine was out of the deal. I'm not right. holding anybody's cook, dude. Right. I'm not going down that road. But right. um, that's just how it worked. And a lot of times it would take two, three weeks before I get paid for a job. Mm -hmm. So in that two, three weeks, I, I, I probably worked half a dozen or so different jobs. Right. And now I'm getting paid for shit I don't remember having done. Right. That's you're just, just how you're it just was. getting trash. You're just getting uh, sandwich bags with money. The bags with different yeah. 50,000, 100,000. Because I was getting ultimately after that rookie two days, I was getting paid according to the size of the load. Now right. I'm averaging anywhere from 100 to $200,000 a week. And I was just turning 21. I'm going on 22. And as a work, just as an unloader, as a guy off, going offshore off and offloading. Now that's wow. where we talk about the hierarchy of the whole right. scheme of things. The boat that goes to Columbia and back, those guys are paid well. Yeah, right around a million bucks to make that ahead. No, just for the ship. collectively captain. Then he divides among however right. many crews on that boat. Now, but th those weren't Americans though, or were they? They were from wherever we could get them from. So you guys actually organized going down there too? Yeah, oh yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. I thought that was organized by the Columbians. No, dude, I would go down there myself. Wow. When I took over, I had to inherited this connection that we spoke about. And right. I had to go down there and actually pick out and the shit that I wanted loaded. 
Oh my God. So end to end. And I you could guys send a after it. I picked out what I wanted, 40 tons or whatever I went there to get hundred tons or 150 tons or whatever it was I could get at any one time. I would spend a day or two days down there picking it out, testing it with the boss's pipe and saying, how many of those you got? Yeah. Kick them down. I'd spray yeah. a mark on them, which I'll get to that if we get to it. Very reason why they get marked. And when the crew behind us is taking them, weighing the bales as I get them. And when I get to where I went down there for, we go back and party at the house and I fly off the next day right. in a private jet that was owned by Carlito Leo and myself. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You were flying on privates at this point. Dude. Yeah. We you had were... a business. We had a, we bought a used uh, corporate Lear. Did you feel like, yeah. oh, I'm a kingpin now. No. Like I'm a boss. Never. None of that ever crossed my mind. I never thought it in that context. You guys were so blue collar, even though you had millions as a worker dude, before you even became a boss. 30,000 pound load that I did as a first, you know, <laughs> yeah. I never saw a load that small after that. That was a, just a, a trial run kind of a thing. Yeah. Those were where I was most comfortably, most common, I would say, rather, is 20 tons. Mm. We did 55 tons one night during that 55, that 20, 28 night run. We did 55 tons one night just to see if we could do it, man. Wow. It wasn't about money anymore. Yeah. It was about just getting the work done, you yeah. know, and, and could we do it? Yeah. You know, it was, it was ridiculous. So was it I mean, still a rush for you or in those moments? No, it was just. It was work. Uh, uh, all we knew, my friends and I, that is, as kids growing up in that industry, all we knew was 20, 30 ton loads. Mm -hmm. was just, was, was, yeah. we didn't know any difference. So work. there was no comparison, no way to comparison, yeah. no way to sit back and go, God damn it, yeah. man, 30 tons? No, it wasn't like that. So how many years did you, were you a worker before you inherited the connection and became the boss? From 1979 to late 1984. Okay, so for about five, five years, years, five years, but you're already a millionaire. You've you've took well, you've taken in a millions. Sense, yeah, but you know what? Making that kind of money as a kid, and the, the 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 older generations were very aware and cognizant, and and made you aware of how important it was to be able to spend money and not have anything to show for it. Because kids with that amount of money can get very irresponsible. Were you and fucking just, the money off? I know you. Oh yeah, we you know they give us the premise on um, how to go about doing spending money and not on certain things and ways of spending it and not having anything to show for it. And then we got creative on our own after a while. And one instance for in particular, I don't want to stray too far off this, off the subject here, but because we keep getting into different, different, you know, things and now we're into the fun facts. You don't know? worry. We're getting, we're, this is all in there. You want to keep we're, me on I'm, track I'm from getting this. Okay. You just, so you just what, be your sweet I self. came up with two different scenarios and one would be for um, me and four of my buddies. First time we ever went, Hey, let's do this. We're, I took $200,000 in $100 bills, and each of my buddies took $200,000. We had a million dollars between the five of us. We spent four days in Miami and made our way to South Beach, hitting club after club and taking on the tab, taking on the tab, taking on the tab. You mean for the whole club? Uh, for the whole club, for the whole night. <sighs> and with the sole intention of coming home with just Having enough money for Latin gas. Women. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, were you, just did to you, get rid of the money. You wow. Know? Just because it was like... I can't, I have nowhere to Dude, store 300 this. grand is a weekend in Miami in bar money. You know, that's you just how blow? it was. No. Oh, well it was given to, we never bought it. <laughs> <laughs> you should have just bought that's it. That's how I wound up with a house <laughs> in the Bahamas. We should tell, I should tell you about that one. It was, you know, we're going to tell these fun stories on the Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash the connect show, we're going to do a follow up after this, but I want to, I want to get this all shit. in because this is like, so, so you're, you're 26 now. Yeah. Um, 
tell us how you became the boss, how you moved up from being a boat worker, uh, an okay. off, an uh, uh, offshore hauler. This is good. You're really very good at what you do, man. Thanks, man. Um, I try. And uh, yeah, I've been a huge fan for since I, <laughs> you know, picked you up, and then you found me. You know, but um, yeah, um, it was just as a matter of circumstance happened to be that 55 ton night we did now, that was the last of the three nights that uh, i had worked so i'm off for the next you know two three nights because i mean we're just burned out exhausted man. um so th- we got 55 tons or better at one point on the island every house that, we, that had a dock in front of it around the island had pot in it so we do this 55 tons but during my hiatus before these last three runs um i was Picked, pulled aside by Daryl, one of the Daniel's brothers, and my, my tell buddy, us who the Daniel's brothers. The are. Daniel's brothers were the five brothers who were, were the original second generation pot haulers. They are the ones that taught their kids, and the kids were the kids that I grew up with. They were the second generation. First generation was begun by a guy named Lauren Totch Brown. Brown, he was a legend in the Everglades. Not notoriously much for his pot hauling, which he renounced. You know, his later years after. Um, some trouble with the law and yeah, and that's uh, always when they're asked, which isn't of course, it? yeah. But a sweetheart of a man, he figured out the path. He went to Panama and around the corner and up to the rivers in Colombia to find the lowland weed that everybody was craving and figured out the method. Yeah, you know, and it was trial and error, dude. It was right. no easy task. About and what years did that? These start? were in the sixties. Okay, got it. And um, so now you're technically a third generation. Yeah. Hauler. So then come the Daniels brothers move into Everglades and when they're younger and the youngest of the brothers, Craig befriends Totch and Totch brings him into the pot hauling world. Mm. And he takes a suitcase full of money to his brothers one night and opens it up and says, look, it's a, come on, let's go. And the brothers almost threw him out of the house and shunned him. They're like, cause they're thinking in those days was if you work for these Cuban guys, they just didn't kill you, then pay you. Well, yeah. nothing could have been further from the truth. Mm-hmm. And Craig, was trying to tell them, dude, it's just, it's, you know, it's not like that. At least if nothing else, take some money and buy your kids some bicycles or something, you know, buy some teeth, you rednecks. Story goes further on one by one, they start to relent and they come on board and they begin to learn the industry from Mm -hmm. Totch and their connections and that they become the second generation, the five Daniels brothers, Dwayne, Randall, Cheryl, Craig, and Fifth one just eludes me. Sorry, but anyways, um, read about it. And they took it from like the this, youngest of they the They took it from this nascent industry to this like booming. They took it trade. up a notch from what yeah. Totch did, yeah. and they organized it a little bit better. And they made the you know between, because there was five of them, they, they made five connections ultimately, and then their connections in Miami. So that's what kept us all busy and all working mm-hmm. were the five Daniels brothers. And there's a very interesting article if you Google Daniels brothers of Everglades. Um, a Miami Herald article will come up that reads, the cocaine cowboys of Miami have nothing on the Daniels brothers of Everglades mm. City. In terms of volume, mm-hmm. not in terms of their violent nature. Right, because of course we not. were family and generational. And not, uh, only one time in my 10 years of doing this did I ever see a gun. Yeah. You guys, only nobody one. ever carried guns. We were there family was never any and violence. generational. And so were those countries yeah. we were going to. They right. were, you know descendants of yeah. the people we were working with. Those are yeah. the connections that I ultimately inherited. But yeah. This predated the cartels. This yeah. was really like uh it, it was a yeah. family business. Exactly. It was, it was smuggling. Business is exactly a great way to describe it. Yeah. You know, it wasn't smuggling or, you know, drug, you know, 
smuggling or whatever that we didn't well, view it in that context. It was exactly it was, that. but we didn't view it in that way. And, and, yeah. you know, fortunately for us, because when you start thinking and going down that road in terms of thinking that way, you're going to f up, Yeah, you know, but we, uh, back to um, what we were talking about that 55 ton night, three days prior to that, I was given a chainsaw and a wrecking bar. And so was my buddy, Jimmy by Daryl, mm -hmm. one of the five brothers, yeah. the oldest really, I think, or, or Randall was the oldest, but Daryl, this was his 55 tons was his job. And the three coming, you know, before it, he gave me a wrecking bar and a chainsaw to Jimmy and I, and pointed to a brand new Winnebago had 125 miles on it, and that's only half of that's half of them were the miles getting it from Fort Myers to the island. Mm -hmm. So he said, "I want you to go in there and strip everything out of that thing from the windows down." I mean, gut that, and we even took the captain's chairs, the drivers, and the seats out of it. And so when you looked at the Winnebago, you saw the curtains and the cabinets and all that shit. But if you got up there and you looked in like this, it was nothing from window mm -hmm. to window. Mm -hmm. Well, after we stripped it out, they put airbags in the springs and the suspension. So when they put 11 and a half thousand pounds of bales in this thing, and now when you look in it, it's bales from the one window to the next like this, yeah. right? And that was, they loaded that thing when we did that 55 ton night. You know, after Jimmy and I stripped it, they got it prepared and ready to go. So we're going to take a, you know, a massive load, you know, one shot, try to do a, you know, couple like that. So we do the 55 tons. I'm, I'm off the next day and I walk over to this house to see, you know, what's going on. Cause it's my day off and how's the, you know, shit like that. And Daryl sees me and he goes, Hey, Jimmy, come here. I'm like, Oh, you know, cause I kind of know, I kind of think I know what's going on here. And he said to me, I said, I need you to do me a favor if you would, please. I was I'd like you to drive that Winnebago to Miami for me. If you, he says, because I need somebody I can trust to do this. And the reason he needed this trust factor was simply because you got, you couldn't go to the dead drop spot where all the trucks and the vans and the you know shit are going in the plaza because you get you know 30 feet of this thing, you can smell it, right? Yeah. It had to be driven directly to the stash house. Yeah. The place where nobody has ever been. Wow. No workers our, ever actually our met buffer the buyer. between the crew was was at that dead drop. That's right. Nobody out of our crew who ever met or knew anybody on the other side. A barrier was up. That's, only, that's the buyer. Only five yeah. people knew those people over there, and those were the brothers. Those were the brothers, yeah. Guys that were putting us to work. Mm -hmm. We don't care who these people are, but mm -hmm. the circumstances being what they were, this couldn't go there, but it needed to go to the house. Yeah. So he said, Timmy, would you drive this thing for me? And I went, well you know because of who it was i relented yeah I'll, yeah I'll drive it you know he said well, i'll give you 35 grand for you know for the trip two hour drive i mean 35 grand i made seventy five thousand bucks that night that night before on that one load just hauling yeah i made a total of like two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars in the last three nights i didn't need to do this mm -hmm. but it was because of who was asking me i did it right you guys looked up to them they're very well, yeah like, i mean daryl's asking me to do shit well yeah. yeah i'm gonna do it yeah you know um, so I'd get in this thing and, you know, what we had done was because we took the seats out of it, it was, um, we had stacked this shit in there to where you just pull, we pulled one bale out where you could sit down in there and drive this, like this right? <laughs> surrounded by bales, surrounded by bales all the way to the back of the thing. Yeah. You know, and this behemoth is like, mm -hmm. I mean, it was, you know, it was smoke and trying to, you know, once I got it going, you know, so it's a pig. So I make this 120 mile, two hour trip. And I get on Chrome Avenue and I'm driving and I'm being instructed over a two meter radio. Mm. And this is important to, to, to backstep on too, was not only did we have our chase boat safety valve offshore, we had one onshore for the drivers as well. Okay. Yes. Tell us. In terms of what we called spotters. 
driver yeah. spotter drivers. Mm -hmm. And at any one time during one of these scenarios, by way of emptying house after house and run after run during the day, there would be any, anywhere from 12 to 15 spotter drivers who were paid five grand a day to just drive to that plaza and back. And they were all staggered in different formation all along the route there and back. And what was a spotter supposed to do if he saw a cop, a highway patrolman? Well, we had by that point already had somebody sitting on every highway patrol and every oh, every wow. sheriff and every marine patrol and every um park ranger or you guys had counter officer. surveillance we had guys watching on, them you had counter surveillance on everybody in the yeah. area well there weren't that many law enforcement in that area dude we're talking about everglades and big cypress national preserve there's nothing out there so there's yeah. not much patrolling yeah. needing to be done so right when there is and where these people are park a guy down the street outside the house man yeah you know hey, so, so he could say timmy on uh you know this part of the this highway guy's moving dude just make sure you go in the speed limit right and we know where this guy's at you know take be cool be careful because you know you can't turn around you can't stop there's nowhere to pull off to no. you just got to pass the fucking guy yeah. should you get stopped and this is the scenario where there's right. where their escape comes in right what the drivers have always been instructed to do is go ahead and you get stopped but wait for whoever stops you to get between your vehicle and theirs Throw yours in reverse and just haul ass and nail the f out of it because now you're you you're a ton heavier than you normally would be. Right. Or you know they're thereabouts. You're gonna crash the f out of him. He ain't going nowhere because his radiator, his fan bell, all his shit is trashed. He's not gonna. He can't catch you. But he can't outrun his radio. So all you need to do is get out of sight of him. Stop the f car, truck, van, or whatever it is right in the middle of the road, and there will already be because you've told the spotters, right, dude, it's up, and a chase car you, will pick you up. One of these guys will pick you up. You get in the car and go home. And you're just, you're just hoping those cops don't start shooting at you. Let them have it. Because in this day and age, yeah. you run into a cop car, they're going to charge you with attempt murder. At that murder. time, in, those, in that day, there was no shooting at yeah. you, man. I mean, it was a guy with a traffic stop for all mm -hmm. he knew. Yeah. And the guy was pissed. And I was, you're not going to shoot you. He's going to radio to the Miami end of it. Mm -hmm. And by the time that happens, it's 45 minutes gone by yeah. until another right. fucking. Because right. you're on the little bum, you know. Yeah. But you're already home by that time. And because the drivers are never the ones that own it and the own and the drivers are never ones that fill it. Yeah. The owner once it's caught once it's stopped and they know everybody and here's this two meter radio. We've got hundreds of these. Everybody that's working has a radio. Right. Communication is absolutely key. Yeah. The owner of the vehicle knows it's been stopped. What's he do? Calls the sheriff's department, says, You know, I just looked out in my driveway. My my truck's gone. <laughs> My truck's been stolen. The damnedest thing. Van's I'm been, missing a Winnebago. My van's been stolen. Wow. You report it stolen, so it's so really it any responsibility of what that's been right. involved in. He'll get it back. Wow. The boats are the same way. Billy wow. didn't own the boat. His daddy did. So we get Literally, everybody is getting paid. The people who lend the boats out, the people who lend the yes. cars out. You didn't even have to haul pot, and you could make so, a living. Yeah, so let, wow. let's drop back for a second. So I'm getting paid according to the size of the load. Mm -hmm. Say we're doing... 25 tons collectively between two boats. We do 50 tons like that. I make 75 up to a hundred thousand dollars for that one night. Mm -hmm. That in the overall scheme of things is a high pay. It's the highest paid shore position next to the guy that owns the house that we're putting a whole load into because he's making a significant contribution. Mm -hmm. We're getting paid the amounts we are because we, we are in sole control. Three people are in sole control of an entire load of first five six hours and we're out there on our own for five and six hours with this entire load so we're getting our asses paid yeah because the two of us have just humped 
800 bales weighing 70 pounds or 80 pounds a piece and busted our asses to get it on shore. Now the guys that are coming out from the islands with the smaller boats, those are about $30,000 a piece. Gotcha. So you're making 75, they're making 30. They're making 30,000 each a night. Yeah. By And out of that 30,000, they have to pay their guy on board. There's a guy driving the boat mm -hmm. and another guy on mm -hmm. board, their mate. When they pull up to us and they're like flies on a garbage can, man, they're pulling up, their guy jumps on board and on our pile starts throwing on his boat mm -hmm. and they're everybody's throwing on their boat and i'm throwing on whoever's closest mm -hmm. like this and then they start taking off 30 40 bales they make the run to the house bail handlers that are making five grand a night are offloading in at the dock and running it up and throwing it into the house mm -hmm. and they're stacking it the guys in the house are stacking it all these guys are making five grand a piece yeah the guys on the boat working with the boat 30 grand they're making 10 grand captain's making 15. Yeah. So from there, it's the drivers. Yeah. Each car, depending if it's a van, truck, or car like that, can make $30,000. They to, pay the to drive, drive to Miami. To drive to Miami once. Yeah. And, and just make that dead drop. A lot of times they're doing two dead drops a day. So they're mm -hmm. making $60,000 a day. But out of that, they pay the driver. Right. So the driver's making, on, this, on that end of it, driver's making $15,000 a run. Yeah. He gets half of it. The just owner, Just to pick you up after you make the dead drop and bring you back to Miami. Or bring it back to, just to Everglades City. The, just to pick the shit up from where the owner dropped it in his front yard, drive it to Miami, dead drop it, bring an empty vehicle back. That's 15 grand. Oh, That's so they bring, grand. The, they bring the same vehicle back as yeah. the load? How, how does that happen, though? They drop a dead it in drop, the parking lot. Yeah. They get out of it and go window shop. And they go, wait. Another Cuban gets in it. Makes sense. Because our guy's going, That's ours. That's ours. That's ours. And yeah, this Cuban's yeah, telling yeah. his guys, Yeah. They go take and empty it and bring it back empty. He mm, gets the gotcha. same vehicle and goes gotcha. and loads it again. Gotcha. And he's just making two runs a day. He can make two runs a day. 30 grand. He Not makes bad. 30 grand. The owner makes 30 grand. And what is a spotter? The spotters are making five grand a day. Yeah. Gotcha. And all they have to do is drive to that plaza and back yeah. all day long. They're two hours each way. So there's this $100 million economy in this tiny little bum speck <laughs> of nothing. Right. No offense, you know? Oh, yeah. And it's... And now what does that community do now? Is it much poorer? Have you seen, have you been back? Oh since? yeah. I go back all the time. I've still, some of my old buddies are, you know, they're, they're, um, airboat tours, doing right. airboat tours with that, swan now, buggy did that, tours did and that shit. pot money, did that hauling money from the seventies and eighties, do you think it persisted? Like, did they, did it help build the community up? Like the way cocaine built, you know, the Miami skyline? Oh no, no, not in that way. That's, because surely That's they could have too, they could have purchased assets, things that would help them, like in the legitimate world. Like, how do you buy a ship? Like buying a ship, there's got to be some equity in that. Like, I assume the Daniels brothers bought, you know, large pieces of equipment no. that you hired know, it. Oh, they always hired it. They the always hired a ship out. The boats that were sent to Columbia typically yeah. were picked. Handpicked. And right? so that's a million bucks. That's a million bucks. But they also got to get weight for the pot loads, right? Well, yeah, to they're sell, going right? to get loaded. However, you know, and they got to wait but, for it to but, sell, but right? Because we're in control of both ends of it. We, yeah. you know, we can tell them how long to expect it to get loaded. Right. And in a lot of cases, it's only a couple of days. Right. Before know? it sells. And then, you know, it gets loaded in Columbia. Right. And then they make that voyage back to us. Right. But where we're talking about is um, 
the brothers or whoever's coordinating mm-hmm. these individual jobs yeah. are approaching people with other individuals that own boats and saying, look, hey, dude, you want to make a million bucks, right. you know? But so, so my question is, oh, that's the longest part of the journey. Well, we don't buy the freighters. No, okay, that shit. makes sense. So that's the longest part of the journey, going down there, the people that own the boats, they're right. taking a huge, enormous risk. Oh, yeah, there's no escape in that. So how <laughs> are they the first people to get paid when yeah. the load sells? Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And then on down the chain. Okay, great. But a lot of times they're given some money up front. Okay. That's where the pay money up front comes to hold and secure them. So they're going to get, you know, a significant amount of cash if the job doesn't even work. But it's only $60,000 is the deposit though. So how does Well, yeah, but if you got a a ship with a crew of of four guys on it and you hand them, you know, 40 grand of that, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, I'll, I'll take 10 grand for maybe, maybe, and maybe not doing the job, but I still keep the 10 if I do right. it. Plus I get paid again. Right. You know? Okay, great. So, so this, a, this all makes sense. So now cut to you, you've got a Winnebago stuff with 11,000 pounds. Yeah. Uh, you make it to Miami. I'm on the radio. They're yeah. telling me where to turn and when to turn. Yeah. And they're taking me down Chrome Avenue, almost to Homestead. And they take me in off into this orange grove, this orange orchard out in the middle of bombfuck nowhere land. And out of all of a sudden it opens up into this <laughs> godly, awful medieval castle looking house that uh, some cocaine cowboy just had some more money than he had brains. And he mm-hmm. built this gaudy looking Viking yeah, thing. Money doesn't have by taste. I just pulled the Winnebago in there and pulled up next to the house. And once I got out, they started immediately opened up some doors that led under the house and started unloading this vehicle. But I was told to stay there all day until the load stopped coming because I was to drive a car with money Bennett mm-hmm. back to Daryl. Right. That's why he needed this trust factor. And that's how I stayed all day. And I met that people that nobody ever met except Daryl and his brothers. So when they went to prison in 1984 or 1983 and 1984, the government did two operations. Mm-hmm. And this is significant at this point in mm-hmm. the story how I made that jump as um, those two federal operations involved 1883 involved over 250 federal agents from every branch of law enforcement under the United States government mm-hmm. descended on that little town of 500 people and started picking off people. Well, operation Everglades one in 1983 was a total flop because Everybody knew two weeks before they showed up that they were coming because they had senators, they had judges, they had congressmen. <laughs> Those generations had people paid. So the Daniels brothers were paying. They had people politicians. Paid. Yes. Oh yeah. Judges, cops. Wow. So they knew this operation was coming. So they everybody ditched and it was a failure. You know, but they decided to come almost a year later. Here they mm-hmm. come, 1984, and this time the the, the adults said, you know, they're not going to stop, and that these people that they were paying said they're not going to stop this. So, you know, just relent. So they just sat there at two in the morning, smoke cigarettes on the front porch, watch the show. Yeah. And here they come 250 plus agents mm-hmm. descended on that town. But in 1984, the second time around, there were more reporters, uh, agencies on that Island than there were people to be arrested. Right. And time magazine was one of them. Wow. And we'll put up a, um, some pictures out of that time. So, magazine, so this is, so this is when the Daniels brothers ultimately take a fall. They take their fall yeah. and they get indicted. And then comes the story in the Miami Herald about cocaine cowboys and have nothing on the Daniel or Daniels brothers, you know, like cooking. So, so, so now on Florida's on the map. So that you guys are right. a target. The judge is reading off their list of seizures, which include a Netherlands Antilles holding company that was worth millions and it had properties around the Caribbean. And here in the States, they had houses, 
um, timeshares, hotels, motels, cars, trucks, airplanes. Daryl had a single engine Cessna that he never had a license to fly. He just had the money to buy one and paid a guy to fly, help him learn how to fly the mm, fucking thing. Mm. Yeah. But um, they went that second operation. They got the more visible personal personalities, yeah. you know, which, but they didn't have any clue at that time to the significance of what it was that was taking place. They had no clue that, you know, half the town was involved and the majority of the work was being done by the younger generation mm. because Time Magazine reads within the body of the article tells a story about a small Southwest Florida town that was tarred by drug smuggling. And most of it's, they said 600 residents, most of it's 600 residents said, so what? (laughs) Yeah. But at the same time, that also read that the town was left of mostly women and children and younger adults because the entire male population's gone to prison. prison. And that's when by day at that house and everybody gone to prison, the Mm -hmm. work stopped. That's right. They knew Timmy. And they knew this good looking mug right yeah, here. Yeah. Took them a month to find me, but they found me. So they, so the Cubans not, are still, not, our Cubans are still working. They want to work. The Cubans didn't get popped, right? No. So, and no. you had met the buyer. See, that's key right there. You, you, you got the connect. The guys came and looking for me the because they knew yep. me. They didn't know anybody else. Yeah. Because nobody else met them. Right. So they come looking, right. they found me. Knock on my door one day and there's this guy, George, from the house. Timmy, he goes, he goes, Dude, we got work to do. He says, can you do this? And I just didn't even get any thought. of Yeah. Right. So, so now I, you're the man. I went back and yeah. So now I'm, here I am. I just put my foot in the door. There we go. I'm, I'm, you know, unbeknownst to me one day, it's just all of a sudden there's a knock on my door and here I am putting my foot in the door to this position that I didn't aspire to. And to this day, consider it just a matter of, freak circumstance that I totally, even got totally. that way. I mean, that's you know? the, that's the story of drug trafficking though. It's the right historical, sociological, political, geographic circumstances that allow, right. you know, drug smugglers to become what they become. It was just know? one particular sequence of events after another that led me to become an outlaw, not a criminal because none of us describe ourselves as criminal. We're outlaw. We're outside the law that you see fit to put in place that we don't necessarily agree with. Right. Right. You know, so let's, let's put it, let's put our uh, distinction in those terms. Yeah. But moving on, I'm, I didn't know, I knew everything from going down to Columbia and offshore and onshore and getting it to Miami and all that. But I didn't know what happens prior to that. So, so we're going to, uh, I want you to tell your story the second half when you're the boss okay. to prison. I want to tell that on the Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash the connect show, that's where you're here that hear that. Okay. Um, but before we wrap, I just kind of want to talk about a little bit more about the logistics, the money, the money that the Cubans had to get down to Columbia after the load sold because Columbia was the connect. Did you guys take that money down there for them? Yeah. Yeah. When, and then you would, then you would load. Yes. Gotcha. So every time you went down there, Always you'd also for. be carrying them the money, bringing them yep, the money. I'd fly the money right with me. How much money would be down? Would be, you guys bring down there? Not much. It, you know, depending on like what I do you said, mean, not about, much. Well, in <laughs> the overall scheme of things, not much at all. Because I could buy thirty thousand pounds of weed for three million bucks for three hundred thousand dollars. Wait, how's that? Is that math? Check out ten dollars a pound. Three hundred thousand dollars is thirty thousand. Oh yeah. Pounds, yeah. Dude. That's yeah, yeah. 30,000 for 300 grand. grand. 
Which so you if can I took a million dollars down there, I could buy 900,000 pounds of wheat for a million dollars. And that's not much, a million bucks. In, no, in the overall not, scheme not of things. in the way you guys are not moving. Not by the no. time I get it back here, when I'm 30,000 pounds, cost you for 300,000, and I, I turned it into 15 million in eight days, minus my fee for a job that's yeah. 30,000 pounds is 5 million. Yeah. You just made $10 million off of a $300,000 investment in eight days. <sighs> you think these are shooting at me? No, of they course not. They can't give me money fast enough no, to go fucking no. back. And that's when you start weighing the money well, and there's no time is, to count. As a matter of course, you know, what happens is, it's, it all becomes mathematics at that point. If I just made you three, $10 million in eight days, you take that 9700000 that's minus the 300000 initial investment, yep. divide 300000 into 9700000 and you come up with a number 32. 32. What that 32 represents is the number of chances I have to get your next load in before you lose money. I can lose the first 31. <sighs> And all I have to do is get that last 30 second load in. You still made money. You haven't lost money. It's an unbeatable business. That's you can why lose there's almost all of your product and, and still make exactly. money. And that shoots in the head. Anybody's preconceived notions about violence at that level of business. Mm. There is none for surely that reason. Well, tell us about cocaine though, because in that time in South Florida, there was a lot of oh, violence, it was a obviously. Wash of cocaine. So did you, how many Coke loads were you guys involved in you personally? Not, not one. You weren't involved in any run, any Coke drops. Not one. How many people were involved in Everglades city in Coke? Runs? There were several, I would have to say maybe two that I knew of. Gotcha. And, and, and what would happen would be that they, those Coke loads would come with a load of weed at the same time. Oh, okay. So we'd be out there to get what we needed to. And there'd be maybe one or two other chase boats that weren't supposed to be with us circling that boat waiting for us. And then, they would throw stuff down to those other boats because the amount of money made on Coke and the, the volume of material is, is such that it's, you know, you can make $20 million off, off of a, you know, a boatload of Coke, a small boatload of Coke. And it would take a giant three boat loads of Yeah. It would marijuana. take a huge ship. You a know, huge so commercial volume ship. versus money and profit is, you know, especially back then, I think in the late seventies, early eighties, a kilo was like 50 grand. Yeah. That was, was like a it resale. Was, it was insane. It's insane. And there was so much of it at that time through cocaine cowboys as they were, as they were dubbed coming into Miami and Miami was a wash in cocaine. Man. Now, do you think, but, do you think that they, the majority of that Coke came through Everglades city or was no, that just a no, piece no, no, of it? That no, was just, a that piece was of just it. A, a, an occasional now and then these guys are doing maybe some shit on their own. Right. Type of thing. Right. It never involved any major cartel cartel deals mm -hmm. or anything that the maybe like Mickey Monday and those guys and the Cocaine Cowboys were doing or George Young was doing flying with uh, Carlos Slater, you know, and those you know doing those things. Right. Um, that created an atmosphere of such incredible violence mm -hmm. that Miami was dubbed the the uh, most dangerous place on the planet to be, barring any other war conflict taking place. Right. And it was dubbed uh, Paradise Lost by mm -hmm. Time Magazine right. by that sheer reason. Right. And that was, was a huge factor in why I and any of us wanted to get involved in Coke because of the way we operated. There's no way if you owe me $25, $30 million for doing your Coke job, am I keeping $30 million here Coke in lieu of payment, dude? Mm -hmm. That's not here, you know, it would be, you know, trust to be paid kind of a thing. So but it, this, it wasn't the, the government and the people you're dealing with. It's totally different. You're dealing right. with a, a murderous onset onslaught of Cubans and Colombians in Miami in the cocaine industry. Everybody wanting to be the guy. 
Everybody wanted to be that guy, but there was only one guy, and it wasn't a guy, it was a girl. It was a woman. Her name was Griselda Blanco. She was the godmother of cocaine. She was the one that actually gave the roots, the, her, her proven roots of cocaine trafficking from Medellin to the United States and gave them to Carlos and Pablo Pablo, Escobar. Right. Gave them their start. She was the one that did that. So it was the reason you guys didn't want to get involved in it. It sounds like it's because it's too violent. It wasn't necessarily the law. It was the violence. Exactly, because we could do what we were doing. And like I said, only once ever in 10 years did I see a gun Mm -hmm. hauling pot. And And it was the cops, right? It was the time I went to Columbia. And when the boss said, come on, let's go see your shit. The first time I went to Columbia. He ran out to his Bronco and grabbed an AK out the door. And his his partner grabbed one. And my partner, interpreter, grabbed one. So I just grabbed Mm -hmm. one and got in the Mm -hmm. truck and off we went. Left mine in the truck, never used it. But that's the only time I ever handled a weapon doing that. And during that time was, you know, to go leave the house. It's so crazy. Like, uh, you know, we've had, uh, we had Roger Reeves on here couple months ago, he was one of Pablo's Coke pilots, but he started off just as a many Southern boys. There's something about the Southern boys because you guys are so good with labor, so mechanical blue collar people right. with that are, have skilled labor usually become drug runners. They're the ones who become drug runners because they have the skills, right? You guys had, well, two things. You had the labor Skill force and, and the, trust. Yes. It's a huge Southern, Southern boy mentality, trust factor involved right. in that. Right. Right. Old, old boy, homeboy. It's old you know. boy shit. Yeah. That's right. Um, you, but the, the guys who were flying in pot, who preceded the Coke industry, right? The guys right. that were flying it in on DC-3s, DC right? DC-3s and 10s. Ten, yeah. DC-10s, you can get up 12,000 pounds on a DC-10. Nothing. It's nothing compared no, not to what- in terms of what you can put on a boat. The ships right. were doing. Right. Now, what do you think it was that killed that era? Was it the law enforcement or was it the fact- that you guys couldn't compete with the Mexican and then ultimately the American bud. Like, what do you think no. ended the era of hauling from Colombia? It's interesting you should say that because <laughs> I had been contacted and offered to chance to, to meet and have a sit down with the supervisor for Homeland Security of Southwest in South Florida. He called me one day about six years ago and invited me to his office to have a chat. He wanted to meet a legend. He said, and I started laughing. <laughs> Legend, he goes, yeah, just come and if you're willing to come to my office, come and have a chat with me. So I pull up to this building with no numbers, no name, no nothing on it, wrought iron fence around it with a steel tipped wrought iron on it and a gate that I went through. And the minute I stopped that car in a parking lot, a Marine came out of the door with an M16 and walked out to meet me in the parking lot and escorted me to the door into three doors inside the building to meet with Homeland Security. And what he told me was the simple truth. I, and we were laying out on the line to one another. He told me shit I didn't know, and I told him shit that he absolutely didn't know. But one thing for sure was, he said, when they stopped us on Operation Peacemaker, and that was me mm-hmm. when I took over, mm-hmm. and running five crews, Everglades, Goodland, Marco Island, Naples, and Pine Island. You were running five crews at yeah, your height. There were 60, 70 people on, a wow. crew, on each crew. What were you making a year in your um, run from 85 to 88 when you got locked up? What were you making a month? Millions. What were you making a haul? A haul. That's how we'll break it down. 1.5 to 2.5 million of each. And what, how many hauls were you doing a month? Probably two a week, three, some, <laughs> you know, <laughs> something like that. So you were flying to Columbia. 
Yeah. Twice a month. Well, what it, yeah. In the, in the beginning, it was that way. But then as it got to be what it became, I, would, I wouldn't just go down for, you know, 50 tons. I'd go down for 100 tons. So that I'd you were moving 100 tons 150 at the tons I'd buy at a time. And then I would send the boats incrementally to go get it. So you, you took what the Daniels brothers did and blew it up. Oh, dude, we, the next generation did, man. Wow. You know, we took it to a level to where we weren't using what were called mullet skiffs. You know, the, the bait, you cat, these are guys on the net boats that catch the bait for the crab eating industry and the mm. fishing industry and the shallower water drafting boats. Right. These were used to haul in the earlier days because they could go through those shallow drafting. Right. Then when we got it, we did the advent of what's called a T-craft. Now you have a picture of one of these older boats that I gave you. We'll show you these. I will show you this. And this is the type of boat that takes it from us through the shallows. But we also had the brothers in the in the Naples that were boat builders that were bo building boats designed specifically under our direction to do wow. what we needed them to do. Dude, think about boat builders. So how much money they made in the 70s and 80s Jesus, in Florida. dude. T-Craft and, and Morgan were the, were the preferred <laughs> boat. And if you're talking five crews, you're talking 70 people at least on each crew. You're talking about 25 to 30 boats, 40 of those type of boats on each crew. You're hiding these boats. They're not just parked in your backyard right. everywhere. There's too many. It's just, I mean, that's a sore thumb sticking out waiting to be, you know, stepped on. Yeah. So a lot of these boats are hidden. But a lot of the boats that were in Everglades, is the guys would use them for fishing and, mm -hmm. you know, and backwater and guiding because that's the type of boat you need. So it was nothing out of the ordinary for that. But. By the way, so now you have hundreds of people working for you. Hundreds. Uh, do well, you they don't know it's me. They, right. You know. But do you still, do you think the size and the scale of that, operation is ultimately what you know allowed the law to penetrate you guys no it had everything to do with one of the guys that was a um long-lived family from everglades well-known family in everglades was around in columbia doing a cocaine thing on his own like i said a lot of guys did that shit yeah got himself stupidly up and thrown in prison in columbia well government finds out who he is and where he's from and why he's there and said look they went down there and said look here's what we can do for you yeah, you want to get out of this? Yeah, here's what we need you to do for us. Wow! So they put him right back, and and when the guys aren't working, you know, and doing what uh, we need them to do or whatever, I don't give a f what you do, man. <laughs> you know, it's none yeah. of my goddamn business. Yeah. But when you're given that down payment to, for the working a certain night, your ass shows up. Yeah. But he was down there doing his shit and gone and back. Nobody knew it. Mm -hmm. Nobody had a clue. Yeah. So they put, put right him, back to work. They spit him he right back out. He was my chase boat operator. Wow. So, so how he, long, how long the, uh, they let two jobs go before they pounced. Gotcha. Now this is brilliant. And, and I know I'm glossing over a lot of the details because I want people to go oh, there's read your way, book. There's so much. I want people to go read your book, but okay. We don't deal with a lot of turncoats and snitches on this show. Mm -hmm. How you guys protected yourselves from, uh, and mitigated your sentences you yes you did what mexican kingpins do they they tell on each other right and they willingly do it and they tell their kids hey if you get caught just give them my name right give them my name what, what cooperate so you can <coughs> mitigate your sentence right well all tell us about that. what precipitated beyond that or even even an addendum to that was a simple fact that there was just so many of us i mean jesus oh my god almighty and like I said, at that time, they were just beginning the mandatory minimum sentencing guidelines across the federal sentencing rules. And now if you get caught with what we were doing, 
you know, you're going, if you get one indictment, there's a mandatory 40 years to life. There's 10 to life, 10 to life on each four of the four counts that come with the indictment and a million dollars per count. So you're going to get one indictment as a mandatory 40 years to life and $4 million in fines. That happened September 1st, 1987. So if, if any guys were around still and doing work, which a lot of them still were, after those times, they were getting mandatory sentence. I was sentenced under old law, but the judge saw fit to find a statute that still didn't provide parole mm. and gave me that sentence, mm -hmm. you know, because of my managerial role that I played in all of this. But to get to, to cut to the quick, because there were so many of us, and the guy that got caught in Columbia precipitated this whole event, this domino effect, picking on the younger guys. I had 20-year-olds and 21-year-olds still running work, running boats in the backwaters because that's how I learned. Mm. And you take one of these little kids and pull them aside and say, look, dude, man, this is over. They've got us. You're going to do 40 years or life, and you got to come up with $4 million. Mm -hmm. Or you're going to take the rest of your life paying it off because they're going to garnish it and whatever. So what are you going to do? You're, you're 20, 21 years old. They're telling on your grandma. You're telling on your grandpa. You know what the f but. Once they started affecting these arrests, and I was part of the first 38 to go. Mm. And we'll show you a picture of the day I was arrested for just under 400,000 pounds is what I got indicted for. And they didn't know till after about three, three weeks into this investigation that that was only about a week's work, mm. you know. But getting back to the sentencing, I was given a, a non-parolable sentence, but I was also given a mandatory 10 years. And... um I was given the mandatory. I couldn't get sentenced below 10 years. But my $1.2 million attorney out of Baltimore saved my ass and capped my sentence at 20 years. So they mm -hmm. couldn't give me more than 20, but they couldn't give me less than 10. Right. I dodged life sentence. But what was taking place was that they were getting kids now. They were old, those people, I think, working at that time were in their 30s, maybe, mm -hmm. early 30s. Right. And, because everybody else had all gone and got out of the business by that time. Right. So what the government understood now that was they're not arresting adults any longer. And one thing in particular, and this is very important for you to understand with regards to the snitch thing, was that... That's my question. Yeah. This was is that, brilliant. What happened was, and it was done by design rather than accident, because the United States government suddenly figured out that they're kids now. And they weren't quite willing to put kids away for life for what they were giving their fathers and uncles and grandfathers Which, by 18 the way, months for a year before. I hate to be this guy. You, know? <laughs> you motherfuckers had some white privilege there because we yeah. talked to a lot of black 20-year-olds that got life sentences for one kilo of crack. I'm so going to tell you that. I'm not going to sit here and tell you there's no disparity in the law. Yeah, there I'm not is. that guy, but yeah, that's some... I there is some fucked up shit book. going on. Yeah. But this is just the plain and simple fact and the truth to our involvement. Answer my question, please. <laughs> the snitching. Right. You guys all told on each other right. and willingly said, hey, everybody just cooperate. Everybody's yeah, we, going down every, anyways. Right. Everybody's cooperating on each well, other. Therefore, we get lesser sentences. Let me put this to bed for you. Let me put it to bed for everybody. <laughs> I got that out in about 15 seconds. How did everybody, how, did, how am I able to sit here after having 16 life sentences handed down to me and $16 million and a very particular sequence of events taking place in order for me to be sitting here having this conversation with you. And as great as it is and as fun as it is to do, I'm allowed to do this for one reason and one simple reason only. And that is because when the government saw they were getting kids and they were you know, closing in on this whole thing, 
the U.S. attorney that was prosecuting me, Susan Daltuva is her name. She's alive today, and maybe she's listening somewhere out of Washington State, that she looked me dead in the eye and said, Timmy, all we want to do is stop this. We're tired of it. We're end, we want to end it. We want to stop it. So when they realized that we're getting all kids now, younger adults and this and that, life sentences weren't comparing to the 18, 14, 12 months they were giving a year prior. So what they did was, we'll give you immunity from prosecution from anything that you've done, but save one count in, in return so we can do something, you know, punish you mm -hmm. in some fashion. But through this immunity idea, allow you to openly tell us about whoever, whatever, and like that without any repercussion. Right. They gave that deal to everybody that was being arrested. Wow. So when they said, dude, they're, they're talking about you, man, they're going to come for you. And when they do, they're going to give you this deal to cooperate. So tell on Jimmy and Teddy and Willie, because they've got immunity from prosecution. Right. Taken it doesn't matter deal. anyways. So you can tell them their name yeah. and those you're not hurting them. Right. This is where people are missing the story. Right. This is a very important aspect to the whole right. thing that took place. And then those was three giving people, us a back door. Right. Those three people can tell on those three people because they have immunity. They have immunity and it's not just hurting all... them. And it didn't matter yeah. that they were hearing a lot of the same names from the same uh, from people. Right. All that told them was they're getting the right people. Right. They're cooperating. They're, they're, they're cooperating. Yeah, they're Everybody's cooperating, cooperating in order to get out from a life sentence. Mm -hmm. And who wouldn't? Sake. No, I, I understand. But when that. it came I to totally a guy like me, that. they want to know who's in, who's in Miami. Where are you jetting off to? This is the big one. Like they this. wanted the big fish. They wanted to know. They wanted the buyers. They people. wanted your Cubans because they don't want to stop at this level. They want to go right to the source. But here's where the twist comes in on my part. Though I was raised in this Caribbean marijuana industry in this nonviolent, family-oriented version of what it was, mm -hmm. and nonviolence, stressing, you throw one of these under the bus, these Cubans or these Colombians or these Jamaicans or these Venezuelans or these Panamanians under the bus or Hondurans, they're going to come after you and do exactly what they're very good at. Yeah. And that's kill your mom, your dad, your brother, yeah. your cousins, your uncles, and the dog and the goldfish if you got one. Mm -hmm. That's just how serious this is. And they knew where you guys lived. They knew where you guys were And they know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, so they did the so government. I said, look, no, that ain't happening, brother. Mm -hmm. You know, so I was taking my lumps and they were putting a squeeze on me because mm -hmm. they wanted this. And you know, what ultimately wound up happening was a Susan Dill to the, the, the um, uh, United States attorney that was prosecuting me. Said, look, we realize that you're not going to cooperate by way of saying names. So they brought two treasury agents in to, to meet with me one day. They were taking me out of my jail cell and walking me around federal building in this little room and I'm being interrogated now by U.S. Treasury agents. They want to know and I said I, there should, the minute I saw their gold badges I said no, if this is about cooperation just open that door and let me take me back home to my cell. But Susan was in the next room and heard me say that so she busts in and says no to me. It's not like that. It's not about cooperation. It's about and if you're willing to tell us how you were able to do this for a decade mm. and we didn't know about it. We couldn't stop it. I said, well, I can tell you dumbasses that, mm. you know, but I won't give you any names. You know, mm -hmm. if you can glean from anything that I'm telling you, a name or somebody or something like that, good for you. Yeah. I'll more power to you, but I'll tell you how it was done. And the first several questions out of my mouth were simply this to these treasury agents. I said, do you know the geography of Everglades city and Chukaluski? Yes, we do. I said, good. Do you know how many roads in and out of there there are? 
to those to those two little islands. Well, there's one. I said, yeah, there's one road. Now, how many roads are there from Everglades City and Chukaluski to Miami? There's one, US 41. That's right. And I said, how, how do you think we got all those millions of fucking pounds to Miami? I said, they didn't get over there on the backs of pelicans mm -hmm. and porpoises, mm -hmm. man. It went down that one goddamn road in and out of there. And 99 times out of 100, we're waving at you as the shit's going mm -hmm. by. That's yeah. just, this is what we were doing. This is how stupid Ask you the cops. Then it Ask got the to be the amounts. Then it got to be yeah. about the money. And, yeah. you know, and... So you ended the party for whoever was trying to come do this after you, yeah, for so sure. The, the <laughs> Thanks, information Tim. they were getting was invaluable. <laughs> but that's where Homeland Security comes in now. And my meeting yeah. with this guy, having been taken down the, in that way and not having to tell on anybody in, you know, mm -hmm. in support of helping myself out. Right. My cooperation ultimately came by way of giving him the right. valuable information according to their definition of cooperation. Right. That's how I'm on it with the 10 years sentence. Right. But in. Do you um, think if you had given up the connect in Columbia, you would have gotten a lighter oh, sentence? Fuck. They probably would have let you go right I there. I would be sitting here probably right now telling you a story. Yeah. Um, so after Even that. Even though there's. Let me just interject real quick. Even though there's a lot of joviality in the way I tell the story because we were kids and it was fun. Don't get me yeah. wrong, man. It was shit ass fun, but it was yeah. also highly dangerous. Sure. Of course. With respects to the law and being shot at by the. Law. Never did I ever fear for my life for one day of ever doing this until the United States government put a gun against my head. Mm -hmm. That's when the first time I ever got afraid. Did uh, did the Cubans that you were working with this whole time, the buyers, did they ever go down? Whatever became of them? We left each other in the dust. We turned our backs and never acknowledged one another from that point on. But that you, they, they were the same buyers the whole time you were yeah. working. Well, wow. what happened was, well, with regards to them and the buyer thing, was yeah. that I wasn't just buying them, their stuff. Sell I was it. buying whoever they wanted, whoever in Miami wanted to buy weed from wherever they wanted it around the yeah. rim, Caribbean rim. Yeah. You go through Carlito and Leo. I don't want to know you. Right. I don't want to see you. You don't want to know who I am. And I don't bring them to me. I mm. only know Carlito and Leo. So, you bring me their money. I'll go do the job. I'll give it to you. You give it to them. Don't introduce me to anybody. So you only dealt with Carlito and Leo Carlito this whole time. And Leo. Wow. And they, and they, as far as you know, and got every away. one of the crews that was working, only several guys in Everglades and, and one or two guys on each of the crews knew who the guy was, mm -hmm. who, right. who went and uh, set up this load. And then it wasn't like, it was like me as a kid. I didn't care who the guy was. And then what about Columbia? Just pay me. What about Columbia? When you went down, the guy you were picking up from right. the, the, the kingpin, the boss. who we'll talk, the boss, who we'll talk about on the Patreon. Sure. Whatever happened to him? Don't know. Don't know, right? I literally just, like it never happened, just turned my back and everybody turned their back on the whole scenario because yeah. we we got off with our asses, man. Yeah. You, I mean, it was a very, like I said, peculiar and particular set of circumstances having to take place in order mm -hmm. for us, even me, to be sitting here talking to you. And the government's... Uh, um, benevolence, if you will, uh, within the understanding of now we've saturated this Southwest Aurora industry by taking out everybody from top to bottom. Now we've got the kids. So we've ended it. Yeah. And this is what Homeland Security told me that one day we were talking. He says, when they took out me and my, everybody else in Operation Peacemakers, what they call the yeah. third operation, 270 agents now did this one. Yeah. And they took me, the first 38, and the domino effect took place with regards to what we're talking about, the cooperation and everybody, you know, this was the end of it. He said, when that happened, 
something very significant took place, and that was a paradigm shift between Caribbean marijuana and Mexican marijuana. Mm-hmm. That in the early, late eighties, early nineties, literally ended Caribbean marijuana coming into the United States. That's when Mexican weed started totally. taking on because totally. the Sinaloa picked up. They've been around forever. There's nothing new about the Sinaloa. Caribbean weed, after us taking out of the picture, went to North Africa and into Europe now because the Mexicans didn't want it. Right. Of they course, they didn't their need it. They had their own shit. Exactly. Yeah. So here comes right. the Mexican brickweed. Mids, makes sense. And the mids. So they didn't have the, the way to, to grow the coca plant. Right. They could grow the opium poppy, mm-hmm. but they couldn't grow the coca mm-hmm. plant. So where the coke go? Instead of Miami, now it went to Sinaloa. Of course, and all, or it went into the Gallardo. all the government's done throughout the years is just make they just Mexican took cartels it from here stronger and put it here. Yeah. They've just made. I, yeah, I looked this guy dead in the eye and I said, "How does it feel having taken this industry out of the hands of generations of families that never fired one <laughs> right. shot at you, and you've given it to Look Chapo. what you did to you've it? You've given it to guys that are you know what he chopping said? people's heads off. You looked me dead in the eye and said they should just legalize this." shit mm-hmm. be done with it oh, this we was seven know. years six years ago yeah, he told me this you know and and i said well, you know do me another favor answer me on honestly in percentages what you think your level of success with regards to marijuana interdiction on our border is what do you think it is he didn't hesitate he said maybe one percent that's Suc- all the weed su- they've su- stopped. Success. And I said, all the thank weed. you. Oh, wow. I said, thank you. That's the most honest answer anybody has ever given me because I can tell you absolutely for fact that when we were younger doing our thing, the nightly news would come on during the Reagan administration and giving you the success in terms of percentages, drugs, addiction is down by 30% or, you know, whatever. And we're laughing thinking, where do you get this? number from what's mm. what's your baseline yeah because from where we sit for every one pound that you seize from whoever or us a hundred make it through at least that's your level of at you least. call this it's a war of attrition you never even you got keep throwing it you never even you. had to get a, get on a chase <laughs> boat <laughs> wild no, all right but, timmy timmy mcbride tim mcbride go thank you so much for being here absolutely. the number one me, pot hauler in american history oh. in our studio today go get his book saltwater cowboy cowboys saltwater cowboy saltwater cowboy the rise um, and fall of a marijuana empire that's it go get it on amazon it's the only place anybody gets books right. it is i read it in three sittings it's so good right. uh, it goes a- into it delves into your personal life prison, all of that stuff, which we're going to talk about, uh, on the Patreon. Sure. Um, is there anything else they can follow you on socials? Or uh, yeah, like I'm at original saltwater cowboy on Instagram. Um, find me there. And what I'm really fond of now is my book is in its second printing. I've gone from hardcover to paperback. Now hardcovers are very rare and very expensive and they're being resold on Amazon for our astronomical prices. That's such a popular and demanding yeah. story to be having awesome. getting a hold of. Um, if you do purchase the book, remember pothauler at gmail.com. That's me pothauler at gmail.com. If you wish to have your book signed after you purchase it, email me, tell me who you are. You bought my book and I will easily explain to you how you can get your book signed and sent safely back to you. Yeah, and if you got, oh, a you're not ba- going to get it signed any other way. And if you got a bale of weed from the 1970s, you'll sign that too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, oh, my yeah. man. Thank you so much, oh, dude. Thank that you was for a great having episode. me, man. Appreciate this is, it. This was a lot of fun, and you know, God bless everybody out there, and um, God bless everybody in the weed industry. Yes, sir. All right, we'll see you next time. He's out.